The committee will come to order. Welcome and thank you for joining us today on this extraordinary and very important and urgent hearing entitled A Hearing to Review the State of the Livestock Industry. Now, after brief opening remarks, members will receive testimony from our witnesses today, and then the hearing will be open to questions. Members will be recognized in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority uh, members, and in order of arrival for those members who have joined us after the hearing was called to order. And, of course, members, when you are recognized, please, please remember to unmute your microphones. And then you will have five minutes to ask your questions or make a comment. And if you are not speaking, please, I ask you to remain muted in order to minimize any background noise. And in order to give as many questions as possible, the timer will stay consistently visible on each of your screens. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me take just a few minutes to give you an, uh, an, my own opening statement. This is, as I said, a most important and urgent uh, hearing because today we will discuss the very important issues facing our livestock sector. Animal agriculture, ladies and gentlemen, is a very important, very significant part of the engine of our food system. And not only that, of our entire United States economy and our very important international trade. As agricultural policymakers, it is our job to examine the conditions that enable this important and critical industry to succeed and to address any barriers that will limit that success as well. Our livestock industry is facing significant challenges, heightened concerns about fairness, transparency in the marketplace as well. In fact, the previous chairman and ranking member of our House Agriculture Committee requested a report on issues and trends in the cattle markets. Earlier this week, Texas A&M University published this report entitled The U.S. Beef Supply Chain, Issues and Challenges. So, without objection, on behalf of Ranking Member Thompson and myself, I'd like to submit this report for this hearing record. Ladies and gentlemen, we all agree now that our farmers... Our ranchers should have access to free and fair markets. And this is why the leaders of this agriculture committee in the House of Representatives 
have been working in a bipartisan way in our hopes of reaching an agreement on a long-term extension of livestock mandatory reporting, which we refer to as LMR. That is also why I introduced H.R. 5290 to extend LMR's authorization for one year. This legislative, uh, our legislation continues the United States Department of Agriculture's mandatory price reporting program, which provides vital price discovery and market information. And of course, I expect we'll hear more of that from our witnesses later on. I also look forward to hearing from our distinguished witnesses' views on critical issues like competitiveness, supply chain resilience, labor, animal health, and our U.S. Department of Agriculture's implementation of the COVID-19 relief and rebuilding assistance, which is authorized by us in Congress. We have convened a distinguished group of witnesses who will not only provide diverse perspectives on the issues confronting our farmers and ranchers, but they also will present views on how we can move forward. And my hope for today's hearing is that by us listening, listening to the voices of these very influential and knowledgeable voices from across the industry, we here in Congress will be able to find common ground on policies <clears throat> that will enhance the state of our precious livestock sector. And I am so pleased to have before us Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa, a distinguished gentleman. And I'm also delighted to welcome our distinguished Secretary Tom Vilsack back again to the committee and to hear from him an update on all the work that the United States Department of Agriculture is doing for our livestock industry. And of course, we have our distinguished panel. And ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna hear from these industry experts because they are highly recognized as the most knowledgeable voices in livestock. So I welcome you all to this extraordinary hearing, and we look forward to it. Now, one final comment. I recognize that we do have diverse and sometimes differing views on what it will take to strengthen our livestock industry and better position it for the future. And I want all of us to listen, listen with an open mind 
And remember that while we may take different approaches, have different opinions, here's one thing for sure, that we all have a shared motivation to make our agriculture system of the United States better so that we can maintain our recognition as the greatest, best agriculture system in the world. And with that, I now like to welcome the distinguishing ranking member, the gentleman from Pennsylvania, Mr. Thompson, for his opening remarks. All right, Chairman, thank you so much, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, you know, on countless occasions, I've mentioned the importance of this committee getting back to holding hearings to explore issues facing production agriculture and conducting oversight of the numerous programs administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, especially as we gear up for the next Farm Bill. So in that regard, I am uh, thankful, uh, uh, Chairman Scott, that we're, we're, we're giving the livestock industry the attention that it deserves today. Now, while it's always nice to hear from our Senate colleagues, and I'm thankful to finally have an opportunity for an open discussion with Secretary Vilsack, this certainly isn't the, the setting I, I would have chosen. First off, I have a number of questions for the department that extend far beyond the subject matter of today's hearing, and I'm sure my colleagues on both sides of the aisle do as well. So questions that deserve answers and that in many cases have gone ignored for far too long. Now, these grievances aside, I want to thank both Senator Grassley and Secretary Vilsack for your participation and testimony. I also want to express my gratitude to the industry panelists that have been gracious enough to participate today. I'm, I'm even more eager to hear directly from you about what it what is and is not working and what we may need to what may need to be addressed to ensure that our livestock industry can can thrive. Now, I sincerely hope your views are heard and carefully considered before this administration or Congress takes any further action on regulations and legislation affecting the livestock industry and, and, um, and ultimately your livelihoods. Now, moving to the substance of today's hearing, I, I've said, said it before and I'm going to say it again, food security is national security. The pandemic made that sensitive linkage abundantly clear as the resilience of our production, processing, and distribution systems was put to the test. Now, while I'm impressed with the resolve of our both our producers and our processors in continuing to provide safe, nutritious food, uh, nutritious products tailored to meet an ever-growing array of customer demands, there are still concerns and lingering frustrations uh, across the countryside. Now, these issues are wide ranging and from uh, market concentration, price transparency and processing capacity to labor shortages and lingering animal disease threats. And meanwhile, despite what we may hear from a few, there, there's a lack, a clear lack of consensus on legislative and regulatory proposals intended to address many of those issues. Now, it seems the forthcoming packers and stockyards or GIPSA role uh, we continue to hear about uh, so much about have been plucked off the shelf by this administration, dusted off and rebranded as a silver bullet to every conceivable marketplace concern. Now, they 
they were undoubtedly controversial the last time the secretary tried to push them through. And if, and if this administration is serious about these proposals, rather than pitting one segment of the industry against another, they they will need to strike a careful balance reflective of the needs and the concerns of all segments of industry while avoiding severe unintended consequences. And that won't be an easy task. It will be equally important for Congress to avoid unintended consequences and keep diverse industry needs in mind as we consider proposals designed to increase price transparency. We will no doubt hear today from those who view government intervention as the only solution. Others will characterize such intervention as a costly solution in search of a problem guaranteed to disrupt the use of popular marketing tools. Above all, it is imperative producers and industry participants maintain access to the information already available through the Livestock Mandatory Reporting Program and that broader policy disputes don't become the reason for a lapse in a program in program authority. Now that said, I'm confident this committee will continue its work to pursue pragmatic solutions that we all can agree upon. Uh, it would I'd be remiss if I didn't commend uh, Congressman Dusty Johnson, ranking member of our Livestock and Foreign Agriculture Subcommittee for his continued leadership on that front. There's no secret that labor shortages continue to plague our economy, the agriculture and processing sectors in particular. Despite, despite innovative efforts to contain the spread of COVID within packing plants and industry efforts to attract employees with bonuses, wage increases, and other benefits, processing facilities across the country remain woefully understaffed. While directives related to masking requirements of processing plants and vaccine mandates for federal and private sector employees are assuredly well intended, uh, I'm increasingly concerned about the rigid and dogmatic approach to their enforcement and the potential to exacerbate our, our labor shortage crisis. I hear these fears as I travel across the country from truck drivers, workers in warehouses, factory workers, uh, FSIS inspectors, FSA county office staff and, and county committees, uh, crop insurance agents and loss adjusters. And the list goes on. Now, thankfully, there are some areas where everyone seems to be in general agreement, including the support for improving access to processing and increasing overall processing capacity. So far, I've been pleased to see Congress, the administration teaming up on this endeavor from reducing overtime inspection costs for small and very small processors to providing resources to help existing plants become federally inspected to the much anticipated $500 million investment and expansion efforts across the nation. I'm certainly behind the idea of uh, giving new, small, and medium-sized facilities the boost that they need to get started, allowing them to find their niche, and hopefully watching them grow to medium and larger-sized players, making for a more resilient and competitive marketplace along the way. But this week's announcement of an additional $100 million for a related loan guarantee program served as a stark reminder of the, of the lack of detail regarding these programs. Rather than continue to throw money to problem, it's time for answers and implementation of the programs already promised. And finally, no discussion of livestock industry would be complete without acknowledging the foreign animal disease uh, threats knocking at our doorsteps. The detection of African swine fever in, in Haiti and the Dominican Republic underscores the importance of our disease prevention and preparedness efforts Unfortunately, politics got in the way of enhancing these efforts before the uh, during the reconciliation process. 
That said, I am confident that industry and the department will continue to do all they can to keep that keep the disease at bay, and I am appreciative of the CCC money set aside to do so. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I look forward to uh, today's discussion and uh, the uh, testimony of our uh, of all those uh, uh, in our uh, distinguished panels that we have today. And I yield back. Thank you, Ranking Member Thompson. The chair would request that other members submit your opening statements for the record so witnesses may begin their testimony and to ensure that there is ample time for questions. Our, now we turn to our first panel, and uh, we welcome to our first panel today the distinguished Senator Chuck Grassley from the great state of Iowa. Senator Grassley, it's good to have you. And now you are recognized for five minutes. Please begin your testimony when you are ready. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, distinguished members of the House Agriculture Committee, it's an honor to testify to discuss the state of the livestock industry. And I want to thank you, Chairman Scott, because you gave me one hour in your office in June to discuss this particular issue, and you were very gracious. My name is Chuck Grassley, and I'm a farmer from Butler County, Iowa. However, son Robin and grandson Pat do most of the work. While this hearing covers all livestock, I want to discuss the reform needed in the cattle industry. Chairman Scott, I appreciate your, your interest in the cattle market reform. When we met earlier this summer to discuss my bill that I have with Senator Tester, Democrat of Montana, you took a keen interest in ensuring that family farmers across the country not only survive, but can make an honest living. Secretary Vilsack, your next witness, knows that cattle producers are struggling. At USDA, Secretary Vilsack is taking steps to expand meat processing industry with grants and loans to address bottlenecks in the food supply chain. Secretary Vilsack has also taken action to support the enforcement of the Packards and Stockyards Act. That's a badly needed move. In addition, President Biden issued an executive order where he called on Secretary of Agriculture to ensure farmers have, quote, measures to enhance price discovery, increase transparency, and improve the functioning of the cattle and other livestock markets, end of quote. While I appreciate the actions from White House and Secretary Vilsack, it is now time for Congress to act. As the nation's number one producer of meat, Iowans rely on market information provided by the mandatory price reporting, uh, to, and they need that information to run their businesses. The reauthorization of the mandatory price reporting is the vehicle available where we can add additional price transparency and price discovery measures, and that's what I'm advocating. Over the past 18 months, we've seen massive price discrepancies between fed cattle and box beef. 
This is pushing cattle producers and feeders to the brink of having to sell their operations. The four major meat packing companies control 80 to 85% of cattle slaughter. These companies have the advantage of procuring cattle from thousands of producers. Uh, these companies can also act as a choke point for the entire industry. Given the critical nature of their operations, these packers dominate the marketplace and limit opportunities for price negotiation. According to USDA, for every $1 Americans spend on food, only 14 and 3 tenths percent goes to the farmers. Meanwhile, the retail price of beef for consumers has increased and remained high, and every consumer knows that. I want to make clear that I'm not upset about paying more for beef. I'm upset because farmers are not making a profit. And while some participants in the third panel will say otherwise, I want to make it clear, there is no denying we need serious reform in the way our country markets cattle. I believe that my bill, commonly referred to as 5014, would create the price transparency that's needed in the marketplace. My colleague, Senator Fisher of Nebraska, has a bill that would help as well. Ultimately, Senator Fisher and I are working on a compromise that can unite the industry because kicking the can down the road is not an option. I hear constantly from Iowa cattle feeders, we need help now. The beef industry employs hundreds of thousands of hardworking men and women who work each day to help feed our country and the world. I'm in front of you today to ask that you join with me and other senators on the Senate Agriculture Committee in, in including real reforms in mandatory price reporting. Cattlemen across the country are counting on all of us. Thank you, Chairman Scott, and please take my, uh, what we talked about last summer into consideration as you look at this change in this bill. I thank you very much. Senator Grassley, uh, we thank you for your excellent testimony before us today. And at this time, you are now excused. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Now, let us turn our attention to panel two. And I am so pleased to welcome back to the Agriculture Committee our second witness today, Secretary Tom Vilsack. Secretary uh, Vilsack, welcome. You are now recognized for your five minutes. Please begin your testimony when you are ready. Uh, Mr. Chairman and uh, Ranking Member uh, Thompson and members of the committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today, and I certainly commend the Chair and Ranking Member and the committee for conducting this very important hearing. Uh, you know, it's an extraordinary set of complex factors uh, to be examined when we talk about the livestock industry in the United States. Supply, demand, capacity, competition, markets, and many, many factors uh, making it an incredibly difficult industry, whether it's weather, feed costs, vertical integration, supply chain disruptions, packing and slaughter capacity, ownership, 
consolidation, competition, trade, import, port congestion, seasonality, many, many other factors uh, make it extraordinarily complex. Our inventories are down in beef and pork and poultry for a variety of reasons, whether it's drought or disease or disruption of the supply chain. At the same time, we are seeing uh, incredibly high demand domestically and exports at a high level, in fact, uh, setting a record uh, for the level of ag exports this year. We know that there is a high concentration in this industry. We know that it, it creates capacity challenges, especially in beef, and there is a need for additional capacity. That's one of the reasons why uh, we began the process of establishing a $500 million fund. Uh, we have solicited information and input uh, from those who are interested in potentially utilizing this fund. We've received over 500 comments, and we're now in the process of analyzing those comments uh, in order to establish and structure the program. Uh, the expectation is that that structure will take place sometime before the end of the year and that we'll begin to make uh, decisions and, and uh uh, investments, hopefully in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, we need additional capacity. Uh, we also need to strengthen our existing local and regional small and very small processing facilities, and that's the reason why we've used the resources provided by Congress uh, to, as uh, Representative Thompson indicated, to assist in reducing overtime costs. Uh, over 1,879 facilities have already received assistance and help uh, from the USDA as a result of that program that you all put in place. Uh, we also uh, have taken a look at the opportunity to modernize existing facilities uh, with the resources established by Congress. Uh, we have over 245 uh, applications that are in the process of being reviewed now uh, for the 60, roughly $55 million available for that purpose. Uh, we also recognize that in addition to additional processing capacity and uh, supporting our existing facilities, uh, we need to make sure that we uh, address the issue uh, of training and workforce. Uh, that obviously involves, as well, immigration reform. Certainly pleased that the uh, House of Representatives was able to uh, pass the Farm Worker Modernization Act uh, and hope that the Senate is able to do so as well. Uh, the goal here is obviously to strike a better balance between supply and demand, between processing capacity and competition, with greater transparency so that we can have a stable, dependent, and fair market. At the end of the day, uh, our department is anxious to have fair prices for producers and a fair deal for consumers. Uh, Mr. Chairman, with that, I'd be happy to respond to questions from the committee. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Secretary Vilsack, for your excellent testimony today. Um, at this time, members, we are going to open it up for questions for the Secretary. Members will be recognized for questions in order of your seniority, alternating between majority and minority members. You will be recognized for five minutes each uh, in order to allow us to get as many questions in as possible. Again, I remind each of you to please keep your microphones muted until you are recognized so that we can minimize background noise. Now, I recognize uh, my own self here, uh, Secretary, and again, welcome. And uh, I, I, I want to start off by saying thank you. And uh, you and I have been working together on some very, very serious uh, issues facing us, and uh, I'm delighted to uh, be a partner with you 
as we deal with so many of the issues facing agriculture uh, now. I've been especially encouraged by the recent announcement that you made uh, out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture that's related to your bold and great efforts to combat African swine fever. And we refer to it now as ASF. And you, as you also know, this is a priority to many members on our House Agriculture Committee. And I was so pleased to hear that you had some news and you were kind enough to call me and share the news before you made it, that the USDA has a promising vaccine candidate for the African swine flu. I have also been a firm believer that, as I mentioned to you, that investment in federal research is very critical to advancing the agriculture industry. And this important work that is going on with our Agricultural Research Service is evidence of that. And so my first question to you, uh, Mr. Secretary, is what are the next steps that you have that involves advancing this vaccine and also how long until we can expect it to be ready for use? Mr. Chairman, there are actually seven vaccines that are currently under uh, investigation and examination at uh, various ARS facilities uh, in USDA. Uh, the, the specific uh, vaccine that you're referring to uh, has recently gone through sort of the first uh, steps or stages of, of testing uh, and appears to be uh, very effective against the Asian version of African swine fever. Uh, there is still quite a bit of work yet to be done before that particular vaccine is capable and able to be utilized in the market. Uh, there are additional steps and responsibilities that are, are undertaken. It's going to take some time, additional uh, field tests. Uh, I also understand that uh, there is also an effort potentially to uh, involve uh, Vietnam that's currently dealing with African swine fever um, in terms of uh, doing some uh, testing, additional testing. Uh, so while I am anxious, as you are, uh, to get this to the market as quickly as possible, we have to do do so in a way that, that ensures the safety of it. But it's, it's moving forward, as are the other six uh, possible candidates. Uh, Secretary, it's come to my attention that evidence that economies of scale have driven consolidation in meatpacking and that larger facilities operate more efficiently. How do we strike a balance between benefits and costs of concentration? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I think the key here is to have a resilient and efficient system, uh, which means that we, I think we need to continue to support our small and very small processing uh, capacity, as I mentioned in my statement, but we also need to expand capacity. There's no question that we are short of capacity, which is one of the reasons why it's more difficult for farmers to get a fair price uh, for what they're raising. Now, that's the reason why we've put together this fund. Uh, as I indicated, we've got uh, 500 comments uh, in terms of how it should be structured in terms of grants, loans, guaranteed loans, forgivable loans. We're in the process of finalizing the structure. Uh, hopefully by the end of this year we have the structure in place so that we can begin accepting applications. 
And um, Mr. Secretary, you you mentioned barriers. Um, identify these barriers. What are the barriers to enhancing our meat processing capacity and supply chain resilience? Uh, I'd say two principal barriers, uh, Mr. Chairman. Capital is one of them. Uh, and then secondly, I think there is still uh, the need for us to invest uh, in additional training uh, and additional workforce. Very good. And now I will turn to the gentleman from Pennsylvania, our ranking member, Mr. Thompson. You're now recognized for your five minutes. Well, Chairman, once again, thank you for this hearing. Much appreciated. Uh, you know, Mr. Secretary, I, sir, I share your commitment to enhancing the resilience of our that part of that can be achieved through increasing processing capacity across the country. Uh, unfortunately, in this topic, some of the department's actions simply didn't match its rhetoric. The, the lack of an appeal in the new swine uh, inspection system case is, is a notable example. And, and while I certainly would be, be curious to hear the explanation for why this administration chose not to appeal rolling with but the potential to reduce national swine packing capacity by 2.5 percent, it, uh, it, uh, and I I have my suspicions. I, it, I don't think it's, it's probably today, it's more constructive to focus on what is being done, obviously, to address this problem. I have heard that uh, progress is being made on a solution, but things have been held up by the White House. Uh, uh, Mr. Secretary, can you clarify what is being done to, to remedy this situation for, for both the effective processing facilities and the producers? And when can we expect to see these solutions finalized and, and uh, even more importantly, implemented? Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Thompson, Representative Thompson, I'm sorry, you cut out a little bit during the course of your question. I want to make sure I understand it. Are you asking about the, the effort to expand processing or are you asking about line speed or both? I think we can all agree we need to expand broadband. <laughs> yeah, better say now. Uh, let, let, Mr. Chairman, let me see if I can respond to, to the ranking sure, question. Go right ahead. Both on both line speed and, and, sure. and uh, processing. On the processing side, as I indicated, uh, the resources uh, for the assistance to modernize existing facilities so they could potentially qualify for federal uh, inspection and uh, interstate uh, uh, transactions. Uh, we received 245, 246 applications for those resources, and we're in the process of reviewing those applications and making the grants of up to $200,000 with a match requirement. Uh, on the $500 million, as I indicated, we had 500 comments. We're in the process of finalizing the structure of how that program is going to be adopted, and I expect and anticipate we'll begin making investments uh, at, the, at the beginning of next year in the first quarter. Uh, on the line speed issue, the Department of Justice makes these decisions. Uh, candidly, uh, the previous administration did not uh, put into the record any information relating to worker safety. Uh, the court found that to be a fatal error uh, in that line speed determination. Uh, and uh, the reality is we're now working with both the industry and those who represent workers to try to figure out ways in which we can balance appropriately the need for worker safety, food safety, and farmer profits. We don't think the Department of Agriculture, uh, or for that matter this committee, wants to necessarily have to choose between those three priorities. We need to establish all of them. I believe we can get that done. I believe that there is a willingness 
on the part of those who represent workers and on the part of the industry to find creative ways uh, to allow uh, adequate processing, but to do so without sacrificing uh, worker safety or health. Uh, and that's what we're uh, focused on, and that's what we intend to, uh, to pursue. Thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. Is the ranking member back on the platform? Is he, he has a minute left. If not, I will now <clears throat> recognize the gentlewoman from North Carolina, Ms. Adams, who is also vice chair of the House Agriculture Committee. Ms. Adams, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, uh, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, for hosting the hearing. Secretary Vilsack, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Uh, while my district is substantially urban and suburban, I understand the urgency and the importance of this issue in my state of North Carolina. We've heard a lot about contract poultry growers being faced with abusive, deceptive, discriminatory, and retaliatory treatment from giant uh, poultry companies for years. Livestock and poultry markets have become highly consolidated with very negative implications for farmers, consumers, and workers. Now, President Biden, through his July executive order on promoting competition in the American economy, has made this point and has called on USDA and the antitrust enforcement agencies to address the problem. In this regard, I'd, I'd like to applaud uh, the president for the administration for their promises to move forward with updated and strengthened Packers and Stockyards Act reg regulations to address abusive, deceptive, retaliatory, or discriminatory practice used by meat packers and poultry companies against farmers. As part of the vertically integrated contract poultry production model, these poultry growers take on huge debt burdens to build single-use chicken houses on their own, own farms and depend on one-sided contracts with giant poultry company, companies to be able to continue making money and loan payments with their poultry houses. So with a new set of Packers and Stockyards Act rulemakings rule coming up, uh, we have the chance to remedy this situation and to improve, to help to move us forward uh, toward fair and competitive markets, not only for poultry farmers, but for livestock farmers. Uh, our farmers need fair playing fields and healthy co competition to thrive. So without decisive action from Congress and USDA uh, to address this, we'll see the same vertically integrated poultry uh, model spread uh, to over livestock categories uh, as well to the detriment of independent farmers and rural communities. So it's time for us to stand up for farmers. So Mr. Secretary, I want to applaud you and President Biden for the plans you've announced to strengthen packers and stockyard uh, these regulations to give livestock and poultry farmers more protections against uh, this uh, abusive behavior. So what do you expect? Uh, when do you expect to publish the rules and what can can we as this committee do to help you with uh, with this process? Well, thank you very much for the question. Uh, I'd say three things in response. Number one, we made sure that uh, when we were looking at COVID relief, uh, that we made some adjustments for these contract growers to, so that they got uh, adequate assistance and help. On the packers and stockyards, uh, we're focused initially on the poultry tournament system rule to make sure that that is a fair and equitable system. I anticipate and expect that we're going to see uh, activity on this uh, on this rule uh, towards the end of this year, uh, the first part of next year. That will be followed by the rule uh, clarifying 
uh, undue preferences and unfair practices. That will be followed by uh, the rule that involves a scope of practice. Uh, we also put out a, a frequently asked question doc a document that sort of clarifies how we see uh, rules that were established under the Trump administration in terms of enforcement and making sure that folks understand and appreciate uh, that we are going to look at ways in which we can uh, event, prevent discrimination, prevent uh, retaliation, prevent uh, unfair practices in, in this industry. The last thing I would say is we're also working at the instruction of the president uh, to put together uh, a, a library, if you will, of contract information and language so that folks can uh, make a determination of whether or not their particular contract uh, is different, uh, is fair, is reasonable, uh, is in line with what uh, you would normally see uh, in this industry. Okay, well, um, thank you, Mr. Secretary. Um, the Department of Justice has been investigating meat market meat packers to ensure no anti-competitive or illicit behavior was at the root of the spread between the, the cattle, fed cattle, and box uh, beef prices. So do you have a sense of when we might see the results of this investigation, whether they'll be released publicly to ensure the transparency and the accountability in, in the industry? Well, we are cooperating with the Department of Justice and we'll continue to do so. Uh, I can't tell you today precisely what their timeline is, but I know that they're continuing to investigate. They're also, as you well know, engaged in uh, price fixing uh, litigation as well. Uh, one uh, potential defendant having already acknowledged, uh, others cooperating. Uh, so we will continue to look at ways in which we can cooperate and partner with the Department of Justice to ensure that uh, our antitrust laws are being enforced. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Yes, thank you. And now I recognize the gentleman from North Carolina, Mr. Rouser. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Let's open a lab. Now, Mr. Secretary, uh, good to see you again. And, and I... Um, uh, I have to. I have to ask, perhaps, uh, and I maybe I wasn't able to hear all the uh, all the questions of uh, my other colleagues. But uh, I'm I'm concerned that the uh, department has wanted to revisit the powers and security, uh, rules from the last time uh, when you were secretary. Um, you know, generally speaking, the rules that are being calculated uh, will invite litigation. Uh, that doesn't help anybody except uh, for the trial lawyers themselves. And it's going to reduce uh, contract opportunity. Okay. Are we back? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Uh, before any new proposed rules are released, uh, will you commit uh, to having the Office of the Chief Economist conduct a full economic analysis of the cost and benefit of the rules and release that report uh, at the same time of the proposed rules? Congressman, we will follow the requirements under the administrative law uh, laws and rules that we are, are governed by in terms of the development of rules and regulations. Uh, to the extent that it requires an analysis, we'll obviously do that. To the extent that it requires disclosure, we will do that. Uh, we will make sure that the rules that we have are based on, on, on uh, uh, an aggressive and, and uh, thoughtful effort. Uh, I can commit to that. 
but you can't commit to uh, releasing a report at the same time. Well, we'll release the information that that is required under the administrative rules uh, that that is that provides background and information on why we think this is necessary. Uh, this is not uh, we're not playing hide the ball here. We obviously want folks to understand and appreciate what the issue is and why we're in the process of establishing rules and regulations. You know, Congress passed the Packers and Stockyards Act quite quite some time ago, understanding and appreciating that there's always a need for oversight. Uh, and we expect to do this in a way that's fair and reasonable and equitable. Well, I, I think it's important that a full economic analysis uh, of the cost and benefit of the rules is proposed at the same time the uh, proposed rule uh, is put forward. So uh, that point uh, covered. Uh, number two, um, uh, USDA announced a program to give $700 million to farm and foreign workers impacted by COVID. I'm just curious. Uh, uh, Will this money be uh, distributed to non-union plants? Uh, the, the resources, I'm sorry, uh, Representative, I didn't quite hear all of your question. Uh, I think you're asking about the resources that are available to uh, for inspections and for modernization. Is, is that what you're asking about, whether it's available to, to plants regardless of unionized status? Well, uh, you announced uh, seven hundred million to farm and food workers oh. impacted by COVID. It's it, it, that those resources are being provided. To, I'm sorry. The, the, those resources are being provided to organizations that have the ability and capacity to distribute those resources to folks who worked uh, in plants uh, and in grocery stores. Uh, I, I would imagine that some of those plants uh, are unionized, and perhaps some are not. Uh, we will be working through organizations uh, that represent and are in a position to distribute. Uh, that's one of the qualifications for participation in that in that resource. Okay, so how is it going to be determined that a worker would be eligible uh, for that money? Well, these are people that worked uh, in in uh, farm workers. Uh, these are folks who worked in grocery stores. These are folks who worked in meatpacking processing facilities. Uh, I think it's fairly uh, relatively simple uh, to explain and to and to identify folks who work in those three areas, and it's designed primarily to offset any costs uh, or any expense that they incurred during the initial stages of COVID. Uh, is there will there be an audit uh, for any potential fraud and abuse? Well, I, I, I think there's always the possibility of, of oversight. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be a specific audit per se, but there wouldn't be anything preventing that from happening. Will there be a limit on the amount uh, that goes towards administrative fees for various organizations? Uh, I think there is a, uh, a, a, uh, a limitation on the amount of money that can go for administrative fees. I think the primary goal here is to get uh, the vast amount of these resources in the hands of folks who incurred expense uh, because they had to buy a mask or they had to, uh, they had to take time off to get vaccinated, whatever it might be. Time of the gentleman has expired. The gentlewoman from Virginia, Ms. Spanberger, who is also chair of the subcommittee on conservation, forestry, and you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Secretary, I want to thank you so much for being here today. 
And I really thank, your thank you for your leadership on promoting competition and supply chain security in the livestock and meatpacking industry. As you mentioned in your testimony between cyber attacks and pandemic disruptions and other stresses on the U.S. food supply chains, we have seen the issue of consolidation in our meatpacking industry as not just an economic threat to producers, but it's also a national security threat to the United States. Uh, as a former CIA officer, I am deeply concerned about the ability of foreign actors to disrupt our agricultural sector, particularly as we see this type of consolidation. That's why I was really proud to co-lead the Butcher Block Act alongside my colleague and fellow committee member, uh, Dusty Johnson. The Butcher Block Act would establish a loan program at USDA for new and expanding meat processors. And I was very excited that just this week, uh, USDA announced a similar loan guarantee initiative that will help expand meat and poultry processing capacity using funds from the American Rescue Plan. So I thank you for that initiative. Um, but for my question today, Mr. Secretary, I, I wanna talk about the um, uh, climate change. And I wanna thank you for your work in bringing growers and producers to the table to combat the climate crisis. Um, and certainly I once had a farmer say, you know, we're the original conservationists. Um, and certainly as the original conservationists, farmers in rural communities really have to be an, um, an integral part of any solution to the climate crisis. Um, and it was in that vein and with that thought that I was proud to introduce the Growing Climate Solutions Act, HR 2820, uh, alongside uh, Representative Don Bacon of Nebraska, also committee member. Um, and ultimately we were pleased to see that legislation pass the Senate with a vote of 92 to eight. So the legislation, as I know you're aware, would empower USDA to give farmers or to help farmers navigate voluntary private carbon markets with confidence. With USDA's help, farmers who choose to participate would be able to collect a new stream of revenue for their work. Uh, they'd be sequestering carbon and reducing emissions. Um, and the bill is almost universally endorsed by national farm groups uh, while gaining support from prominent environmental groups and private sector companies as well. So I was curious, Secretary Bill Sack, um, from your view of this legislation, um, do you believe that this legislation would be helpful to growers and producers um, as as you uh, in your role as secretary are working on the climate climate crisis? And would you care to comment on it? Well, I, I think it would be incredibly helpful uh, because it's clear that we need to provide more information and more technical assistance in terms of what climate smart practices consist of and how to measure and quantify and verify those results. Uh, so the act that you are, are uh, encouraging your members uh, and your colleagues to vote on and the one that passed the Senate overwhelmingly would provide that kind of help and assistance. And I think it would complement nicely the Climate Smart uh, uh, Partnership Initiative we, we announced last week in Colorado, where we're essentially looking at large-scale demonstration and pilot projects to be able to uh, aggregate information about what works and what doesn't so that we can, over time, create the standard for climate smart commodities. Uh, as was the case with your act, uh, significant uh, uh, support from the agricultural community, uh, a lot of farm groups supporting uh, the Climate Solutions Act. Uh, likewise, both the food and, and ag and environmental uh, uh, industry is very supportive of our efforts to try to focus on these pilots and demonstration projects. So I think it's a nice combination of providing the technical assistance and the resources to minimize risk to farmers and to empower them with information and knowledge about how best to incorporate climate smart practices in their in their farming operations. And, and certainly the, the trusted voice that is USDA is a, is a valuable resource there. Um, well, thank you for those comments. Uh, music to my ears. 
and, and certainly we do hope to be able to move forward and ensure that our farmers and producers can uh, can sequester carbon while also ensuring an additional revenue stream, particularly during, uh, you know, particularly given the, the challenges that so many producers are facing across the country. Uh, in the time that I have left, Sec Secretary Vilsack, could you speak a little bit about the, the loan guarantee program that I mentioned um, in my comments uh, before I ask the first question? Um, I'm curious how this, um, how you see this loan guarantee program specifically helping new entrants to the meat packing and processing industry. Well, we have two basic opportunities for the for folks who are getting into the business. The five hundred million dollar uh, program that was announced several months ago, uh, and the loan guarantee program is really looking at uh, at ways in which we can f help folks in the middle of the supply chain. Uh, there may be a need for cold storage. Uh, there may be a need for mobile uh, processing. There may be a need for farmers to work together cooperatively to brand and market a particular product. These resources would basically make it easier for banks, uh, CDFIs, to lend the money uh, to ha have an entity either get started or to expand or to improve uh, their operation. Right now, many uh, bankers, uh, many CDFIs are not really fully comfortable uh, knowing this, this area of the middle, uh, and so the loan guarantee makes it a little bit easier for them to make, uh, to make the loans available uh, across the board, but it's primarily designed at the middle of the supply chain. Uh, the 500 million is based on creating capital for uh, new processing facilities. Fantastic. Well, thank you. The for gentleman's your time, time has expired. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Secretary Vilsack. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, my pork producers are telling me that, that the pork producers still have not been paid the CFAT payments. Is, is that correct? We, we have, a, I think we've announced uh, those payments, uh, uh, Representative, but I'm more than happy to double check and, and get back to you with exactly how many dollars have actually been paid out to those producers. Okay. I, I would be interested in knowing that on the, on the pork as well as any of the other uh, CFAT payments. Well, I can, I can tell you that over four billion dollars have have been uh, have been distributed to uh, producers, commodity producers, livestock producers. Uh, uh, but we, we we can get you very specific information and in, in dollar amounts. Okay, I, I would very much appreciate that. Thank you, and I I know that uh, you know Gyps has been brought up a lot. I, I would just like to point out that uh, Chairman David Scott and I both. Uh, co-authored a letter to Secretary Purdue uh, outlining our concerns uh, with what had been done in the past. There's historically been pretty broad bipartisan concerns there. And, and again, would ask that you uh, stay in close contact with the committee uh, on any of the rules and regulations with regard to GIPSA. Uh, that there again, has typically been broad bipartisan concern with, with that particular area of uh, USDA and rules and regulations. Uh, one question I have, and uh, deals with the uh, food safety inspection services and, and the masks. Uh, how many businesses have, have not been allowed to have inspections or have had inspections withheld as a result of non-compliance of that notice? Uh, I understand, uh, Congressman, it, it is characterized as a handful uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of less than 10. Okay. Hey, uh, 
I'll yield the remainder of my time, Mr. Chairman, and certainly uh, by, the, by the next panel, expect to be in my office and have, have further questions. But Secretary Vilsack, before I go, certainly uh, would very much appreciate an update in specifics on the CPAP payments. Uh, my sports producers are telling me that they, they have not been paid. And uh, as you know, all of our livestock producers have had a very difficult year. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Scott. The gentlewoman from Maine, Ms. Pingree, you're recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. And thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being with us today. Uh, really appreciate your uh, attention to all this. I'm, I'm glad uh, the chair has decided to have this hearing. Uh, I'm going to try to get in two questions, so I'll see if I can be quick. I know organic agriculture isn't the primary focus of today's hearing, but it's just so important to my district. During your previous time as a secretary, you finalized the organic livestock and poultry practices rule, um, and I was disappointed to see that the uh, Trump administration withdrew that. Um, in June, you announced the USDA plans to begin rulemaking on these standards again. Again, I just want to reiterate how essential it is to have meaningful, well-defined standards for organic livestock and poultry. Could you give us a little uh, update on the progress? And I know that there is a legal challenge going on, but I'm wondering if you could start the rulemaking even with the litigation ongoing. We've actually started that process, uh, Congresswoman. We, we anticipate and expect um, an opportunity to get what we are working on to our general counsel for review uh, in the very near future into OMB, hopefully by the end of this year, uh, and hopefully uh, seeing some progress in terms of publication uh, in 2022. Uh, we understand and appreciate the need to get this done, and we, we are we, that and the origin of livestock rule are two things that we are uh, prioritizing. Right. Well, again, I don't have to remind you that having uh, standards that really recognize the inputs that people have who are doing the, you know, uh, doing what they need to do as organic producers is just so critical and, and really uh, is a challenge to those to the marketplace right now. Um, we're certainly talking a lot about meat processing today, and I just want to focus a little bit on the small-scale meat processors. Um, I appreciate the attention to in increasing resilience and diversity in meat and poultry processing, and I know that um, you've given that new, renewed interest, including the $500 million investment that's been announced and to support new competitive entrance into the sector, and certainly you've talked a little bit about that today. But I just want to focus more on uh, the smaller scale producers, including help for existing small scale producers to expand and upgrade their infrastructure. W what are the USDA's plans for supporting small processors within the $500 million investment will support for the existing federal inspected small processors to upgrade their facilities be included in the program? That, that seems like somewhat of an oversight to me. Well, the, I think the reason why we are focused on, on, uh, new processing capacity with the 500 million is because you all have identified additional resources available to small and very small processing facilities that wish to modernize. That's the grant program that I alluded to earlier, roughly $55 million. Uh, we received 240 some applications for those resources. Uh, those are $200,000 grants that will enable those small producers if they wish to upgrade their system so that they can qualify for interstate uh, transactions, which would expand their market. Um, and so that we want to see where that goes and we want to see what the demand is. Um, in addition, we obviously as well have the, 60, have the $100 million that's been provided to uh, reduce overtime. 
uh, costs to help uh, small and very small producers, uh, processing facilities uh, pay for uh, federal inspection uh, and for their inspectors. Um, that has been a very popular effort. Uh, almost 1,900 uh, operations are taking advantage of that. So those two areas are areas that we are providing help and assistance. Um, the 500 million, we'll see uh, essentially how the 55 million operates and see if there's a additional demand. If there is, we can make uh, we can make some adjustments or we can take a look at uh, additional resources in that uh, processing grant program. Great, and I, I mean, I, I, I really appreciate how important that is and how big of a roadblock this is for um, for so many producers who are finding you know increased interest in the market. Uh, a lot of people want to buy locally raised uh, meat and they want to buy it from you know farms that are using sustainable methods but uh, there is such a backlog in the processing I know I don't have to tell you that but it's just a huge issue in our region I'm just going to clarify because I think I heard you right and I know one grant can't do everything but under the meat um, meat and poultry inspection readiness grants if you're already a federally inspected processor but you want to expand your capacity you currently aren't eligible is that correct I think that is correct, but uh, I could I could be corrected on that. But I believe that's correct. Uh, the, the goal of the goal of this was to try to give people the ability to expand their capacity and expand their market opportunities. Right. Okay. Um, I I'll clarify that with you, and I appreciate um, your answers. And I'm out of time, but thank you for being with us here today. Thank you. Hey. <clears throat> the general lady from Missouri, Miss Hutzler. You are now recognized for five minutes. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Secretary Bill Sack. I wanted to actually build on the question that we just heard from my uh, colleague, uh, Representative Pilgrim, about the uh, $500 million uh, grants that are being under review right now. Um, I want to encourage you to include the smaller um, plants that stood up after COVID began. Uh, I, I would hope that you will consider the definition of new plant as including new as in from the start of the pandemic, because uh, I'm aware of some facilities that with the problem that was uh, we were seeing stood up during that time frame and they went in debt to build these facilities. And um, I'm concerned that they won't be able to qualify for some of these funds that uh, are very, very important. So it, I, I sure hope that you will consider that in the, in the process. Well, as, as I indicated, we received over 500 comments. I suspect those comments uh, will be incorporated. We will obviously take your uh, concerns in, into, into, uh, into consideration. Yeah, I, I expect and anticipate that the demand is going to be in excess of what we have resources uh, for for the very reason that you've just alluded to. There there are facilities that were in in the planning stage. There were facilities that are about ready to operate. There and they may need operating uh, resources as opposed to capital to get to, to build. Uh, so I think I think we're going to find a, a lot from this particular program. And the goal here is to learn so that in turn, as you all look at uh, farm bill programs and things of, the na of that nature, there may be lessons that could be applied uh, to additional programs that could be established on a more permanent basis in, in this in this space. Well, thank you. And another area of concern that I'm hearing from several of our USDA offices is this concern with the vaccine mandate that has been uh, put down by the administration. 
um, there's the, the thinking that many USDA offices will have to close because individuals just do not feel comfortable for whatever reason in taking the vaccine. And I was hoping that uh, you would be open to allowing for some exemptions of these mandates if the individuals already had antibodies in their system or if they uh, did other precautions rather than having these offices closed and our farmers not have access to the services. Are you open to setting up some sort of an exemption service to keep them open and allow the workers to continue to come if the officers are going to close or if it's going to significantly uh, hamper the operations? Well, there are provisions in the uh, proposal for religious exemptions and for health uh, exemptions, and so we'll certainly respect those. Um, and I would anticipate and expect that we will do what we need to do to keep offices open. At the end of the day, we don't want to ne necessarily reduce the service to people that need the service. Uh, so I don't anticipate that we're actually going to see a significant number of closed offices that would uh, significantly uh, reduce our capacity to serve farmers and ranchers uh, in your state and, and, and other states. Great. That's great news. I appreciate that. Um, in the... Uh uh, outdated Packers and Stockyard Act, um, there is a prohibition that individuals who own uh, sale barns cannot also have a packing facility. And um, this is, I, I think, detrimental to our goal to be able to increase the packing capacity. And so are you open to looking at removing this barrier to entry uh, to allow people active in the livestock sector already to invest in local and regional processing? Uh Congressman, this is the first time that question's been asked of me, and I'm probably not in a position to say yes or no. I'm more than happy to go back to the office and talk to our folks uh, as they're putting this rule together. I want to make sure that I'm not interfering with the capacity of the rulemaking process, but uh, certainly uh, we'll be glad to ask the team that question. Wonderful. Um, and I appreciate the chairman asked, started off asking a question about the vaccine for the African swine fever, and that's certainly very very encouraging. Uh, uh, you probably are aware, though, of some other wonderful technology that at the University of Missouri, they have developed a pig that is uh, immune to or resistant to uh, PERS. And of course, that's also one of the world's very uh, costly animal diseases. But uh, because of the jurisdictional mayhem between the USDA and the FDA, this technology is not yet available to producers. It hasn't been approved. So um, can you please share your goals for ensuring that there's an appropriate regulatory structure for agriculture to use the tools that we have in addressing these environmental disease and food safety issues? Well, that's a great question, and, and it's one that uh, I would uh, sort of align myself with, uh, with you on. I think there are ways in which uh, we have to work collaboratively with our friends at FDA to make sure that our regulatory system uh, is able to respond quickly enough uh, and be able to keep uh, keep aligned or keep uh, pace with the change, uh, the pace of change. And, and I, I could give you several examples where I think we have work to do in that space. Uh, and did, I've expressed that to uh, to our friends at FDA. The general lady's time has expired. The gentleman from the Northern Mariana Islands, Mr. Sablon, you're recognized for five minutes. Yeah, thank, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for holding this truly important uh, hearing. I'm Secretary Vilsack, welcome uh, from right around the world, actually. I'm 14 hours uh, ahead of uh, Eastern uh, Daylight Time. 
Um, Mr. Secretary, I, I, Mr. Chairman, I'll digress from the topic of the hearing, but uh, I'm, I'd like Mr. Secretary to commend uh, Deputy uh, Undersecretary uh, Stacy Dean for uh, working with me to, uh, we're getting close to coming to an agreement on an effort that I started when you were in your first term as uh, Secretary of uh, Agriculture a long time ago. And uh, I think we're getting close to an agreement and uh, I just like to I recognize her efforts uh, and coming to terms with this uh, issue, this effort that I started uh, over a decade ago, uh, Mr. Secretary, just thought you you know uh, about your about Secretary uh, uh, Stacy uh, Dean's efforts, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I don't expect a response from the Secretary, but I saw you back, Congressman. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I'll make sure that uh, the Deputy Undersecretary is aware of your thanks, and uh, we will continue to work hard to try to get that. Uh, those nutrition programs working for all of your folks. I appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield. Thank you very much. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Allen, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Yes, yes I can. You. Thank you very much and uh, appreciate uh, you having this hearing today. Uh, good morning, Secretary Vilsack, or afternoon, I guess it is. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, obviously, the hearing today is, is an important one. Uh, and it's uh, focused on the issue that I've heard from my constituents frequently since the outbreak of COVID-19 in 2020. Uh, all matters related to uh, food security or certainly national security. Uh, if, if we cannot assure our constituents that our food supply chains are secure at all times, then we're not doing our job. Uh, during this pandemic, we saw undisputable evidence that those supply chains are not secure. I believe that overconsolidation in the meatpacking industry does hold a share of the blame for this situation we have found ourselves in. And I think it, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we want to support the small packing operations, but I think we got a, ge a geography problem. Uh, these uh, these facilities are located uh, and sort of centralized in locations, and uh, there needs we we need more distribution throughout throughout the the country. Uh, however, what we should do is address this issue is an infinitely more complicated question than it is to answer. Uh, as you're aware, the Agriculture Marketing Service maintains a library of the various contracts and pricing arrangements in the swine industry. However, no such contract library exists for cattle producers. I have heard from several cattlemen about the need to provide more transparency in the market particularly for formula transactions. Do you believe that establishing a contract library for cattle would provide more, uh, provide more price transparency to the cattle producers in my district? Uh, Congressman, good question. Uh, the uh, president's executive order has asked us to put together a report due in December 
on this very issue. Um, I don't want to anticipate and expect what the reports ultimately conclude, but I think to the extent that we can create more information for producers about what contracts ought to be, what contracts are, uh, the more transparency, I think the stronger the market is. Uh, and that would be my hope, uh, that we would be able to provide help and assistance with, uh, with, with a library of sorts, if you will, uh, across all uh, both meat, meat, both meat, uh, beef, poultry, and, and pork. Uh, Mr. Secretary, speaking to the administration, uh, there is concern about this administration rushing ahead uh, with too much too soon on measures that will have unknown impacts on the highly complex livestock markets. In your mind, would it make more sense, for example, to wait to see how the investments being made and additional processing capacity affect the marketplace before piling on additional measures like the announced packers and stockyards regulations? Uh, Congressman, I think that they're complementary. I don't think that they necessarily uh, need to be sequenced. Uh, the reason they're complementary is packers and stockyards uh, it really doesn't address the capacity uh, competition issue, it addresses whether or not activities and relationships between producers and processors are fair, are reasonable, uh, are equitable, are uh, not being used uh, discriminatorily or uh, in retaliation. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a slightly different problem it's trying to address and trying to prevent as opposed to the capacity consolidation issue, which requires us to have uh, more processing uh, capacity. Well, as the industry, we need to uh, maybe communicate a little better because there is concern out there. Uh, your department announced uh, Packers and Stockyards investigation to explore potential Packer wrongdoing in the wake of the Tyson facility fire in Holcomb, Kansas, and the ongoing pandemic. Can you clarify whether that investigation is ongoing? And if not, what, uh, you know, what were the findings? Well, if there's an investigation uh, undertaken, uh, I'm assuming that it also uh, I'm assuming it also involves the Department of Justice, who would be sort of the lead in this effort. Uh, but I will get back to you, Congressman. I don't know the answer okay. to that question. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you, Mr. Secretary, and uh, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Allen. And now the gentlewoman from New Hampshire, Miss Custer, recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. I so appreciate you holding this hearing. I want to welcome back Secretary Vilsack. Just as you have returned to the USDA, I'm excited uh, to have returned to the Ag Committee again this year, and I'm pleased to be working with you once more. I want to begin my questions by sticking with the livestock theme of this hearing and ask about contract production, especially in light of a large number of dairies in the Northeast region recently losing their organic milk contracts. I'd be curious to get your thoughts, Mr. Secretary, about production contracts, as I know these are also common in other parts of the livestock sector. I'm troubled that in some cases, production contracts can inhibit producers with unstable pricing structures and short contract lengths. Sometimes farmers don't have much leverage to stand up for fairer terms. I'm wondering if you are also concerned about that and whether this can disadvantage smaller farmers and producers as well as certain geographic areas. And do you think there'll be lessons we can learn from this situation in the Northeast that could help small producers remain viable? 
Uh, Congressman, I'm very familiar with the situation in the Northeast. In fact, we had a very extended conversation with uh, a task force that has been put together that's going to operate uh, under the Vermont uh, Dairy Innovation Center uh, to try to begin the process of trying to formulate a plan uh, to deal with this regional challenge. Uh, it's a complex circumstance in the Northeast where there is a surplus of uh, organic milk um, and there are transportation challenges uh, that one of the major uh, processors ha has determined to sort of consolidate where they process the milk and who they're going to do business with, uh, which has caused the disruption. Uh, so we're now in the process of taking a look at ways in which we can provide help and assistance uh, to those producers to find a home for their milk, whether it's through procurement, USDA, or whether it's through additional processing capacity, or whether it's uh, working with uh, other federal agencies to address uh, the issue, the transportation challenges that, uh, that the industry faces. Uh, I'm more than happy to talk uh, generally about the importance of having fair contracts. I think there is a, there is a, a role uh, in an efficient system uh, for contract processes, but we want to make sure that they're fair. We want to make sure that when farmers enter into such contracts, they're aware of what is equitable or what potentially might be inequitable in terms of the relationship. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we are engaged in rulemaking, one of the reasons why we put more uh, studies out recently on price discovery, one of the reasons why we'll uh, continue to look at ways in which we can create this contract library that I referred to earlier. So th there's a series of steps that have to be taken, I think. There's no one single answer to this situation. Great. Thank you. And thank you for working with the task force. I want to switch gears a bit and ask you about the Climate Smart Agriculture and Forestry Partnership Initiative that you announced last week. While I understand the public comment period is still open and there are details to be worked out, could you speak to your vision for how to ensure small family farms and forestry operations will be well represented in the pilot projects that are ultimately selected? Well, there, there is, as part of the uh, structure of the partnership, a, a, uh, in, in essence, a requirement uh, that we uh, do the sufficient outreach to community building organizations to ensure that we receive applications that impact and affect directly uh, small uh, uh, producers, uh, disadvantaged producers, uh, distressed producers, ways in which we can provide help and assistance across the board. This is not designed to provide help and assistance to uh, to, to large, uh, solely large active, large production facilities. The reality is this 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 operation is really designed. To, to address the issues that folks have raised about the, the importance of getting more producers engaged in this in a thoughtful way uh, by allowing aggregation of very small uh, small producers into a larger group uh, that will allow those small producers to receive assistance, financial assistance, to adopt climate smart agricultural practices and then work with universities and others to be able to quantify and obtain data that will allow us ultimately to create standards that will assist farmers in, in, at, at whatever size benefiting from climate smart commodity sales and also potentially benefit from any ecosystem market that they may uh, at the, in the private sector be able to qualify for. The goal here is to get information and data so that we do this right and that we support the right set of policies and, and practices. So uh, there will be a concerted effort to make sure that we help producers of all sizes in this effort. Great. Thank you. Uh, my time is running short. I have a, one more question on the Northeast Federal Order uh, regarding milk producers, but I'll submit that for the record. Thanks so much. I yield back. Thank you very, very much. 
Now I recognize as a gentleman from South Dakota, Mr. Johnson. You are now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I'll start with a couple of thank yous. Uh, first off, you and I share all the value, a sense of the importance of small and regional processors. And so I want to thank you for the implementation of that overtime relief uh, program that was championed by uh, Congresswoman Angie Craig and I. So thank you to your team for that. Secondly, just a building on, I think, a really good conversation that you and Ms. Adams had with regard to the value of a poultry contract library and the conversation that you and Mr. Allen had about the potential value of a beef contract library. I just want to thank your team again. They have provided a tremendous amount of technical assistance in the last couple of months as uh, our team has been working to introduce, and, and I think it will be forthcoming, uh, uh, legislation that would establish a beef contract library like we have today in pork and like you are uh, likely uh, that you're working to develop in poultry. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, my third comment is gonna be a question, sir, about uh, Ms. Pingree's and Ms. Hartler's interest in uh, that $500 million going toward uh, small processors and, and maybe extremely small processors. I think that could well be a good investment, but I also know that this is a very difficult marketplace for small processors to exist in the long term. A few years ago, when gross packer margins were negative numbers, we saw a lot of those smaller facilities uh, cease operation or be bought up by much, much larger participants. Do you have any thoughts for us about how USDA and Congress could ensure that investments go toward processors that are likely to be able to withstand those kinds of storms that will be abiding and that will provide longer lived uh, benefit to the marketplace? Uh, Congressman, it's a great question. And uh, I've asked for assistance from folks who uh, work in the private sector uh, to assist us as we formulate uh, this, this effort to make sure that we are making wise decisions and not putting people in a situation where they are bound to fail. Uh, that's not the point here. The point is we want folks to succeed. Uh, so, second, so first of all, we're going to do an analysis and make sure that we, we are uh, investing. Uh, secondly, I think there, there may very well be a component of this. I don't want to prejudge this, but there may very well be a component of this that looks not just at, at entities that need capital to build, but those who might need uh, assistance uh, in the first early stages uh, of operation uh, to get their feet on the ground. Uh, so structuring this in a way that potentially provides uh, some level of assistance and help, utilizing potentially other programs at USDA to do that. Third, I think it's an opportunity here. Uh, it's not just in the packing area, it's also in the value added uh, section. If you take a look at where the money is uh, in this industry, uh, there's a lot of money being gained with value added. And I think the opportunity here for small and very small processing capacity is to add a, an additional wrinkle, an additional value added component uh, to customize, if you will, uh, the product that they're producing so that they get a higher value uh, in the marketplace, that they create a niche for themselves in that marketplace. And I think we'll be looking at ways in which we can uh, provide assistance and help so that you not only have a processing capacity, but you have the ability to add value uh, in the marketplace and be able to get perhaps a higher price that might make it just a little bit easier for you in that niche market to be able to, to, uh, to stay in business. 
Yeah, thank you, Mr. Secretary. And as you work to examine the possibility of some of those early days operating capital, I think that could uh, be argued rightfully to, to help with capacity building. You know, let's just make sure that we've got a game plan for bringing down that support because uh, support for fledgling market participants is one thing. Uh, if the handouts just continue uh, in, into uh, perpetuity or for a long time, then obviously I think we have more market distortion there and more problematic investments. Maybe just two other things quickly, sir, I would mention. It's been widely reported in the press that uh, President Biden had indicated to Prime Minister Johnson uh, over at the United Kingdom that uh, we were going to open up our shores uh, to additional uh, British lamb without reciprocal access. I think that's concerning, and so I would uh, just ask that maybe I'll submit that for the record, and if you could follow up with any insight you have into that, that'd be wonderful. This is and an important you, is an important issue. Uh, we we're out there asking Mr. our secretary. I'm sorry, the chairman's going to cut me off in 15 seconds. So let me just say this: I want to double down on the comments Chairman Thompson made with regard to the line speeds. Uh, you've talked, I think, rightfully so about the importance of building capacity. USDA has the power uh, through a process to expand capacity, and I hope you will do so. Time is of the essence, sir. Thank you. Uh, the chairman will yield time. I believe, Mr. Secretary, you wanted well, to respond about yeah. the it, prime minister. When I, when I tra- thank you, Mr. Chairman. When I travel overseas, uh, Representative, <clears throat> I uh, am always to asking our European friends and others to follow the science, uh, and particularly as it relates to BSE. Uh, we had this conversation with our Chinese friends for a long time. We've got to be consistent here. Uh, we got to follow the science. We have to follow OIE recommendations and requirements. We've been dealing with this issue uh, uh, in terms of lamb for a, a long period of time. Uh, and so it's pretty consistent with our, our approach internationally for our exports that we follow the science. And I think we have to talk the talk and walk the walk. And that's, uh, that's I think, what you're going to see here. Thank you, thank you for Mr. responding Chairman, thank to you me. For your Ms. indulgence, Gall. our record will be stronger, sir, because you allow that. Thank you. The gentleman, the gentlewoman from Iowa, Miss Acne, is recognized now for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott, and thank you for holding a hearing on this incredibly important issue to our state, which, of course, is why uh, we saw Senator Grassley here earlier. And I'm so grateful to have uh, my fellow uh, Iowan here, uh, Secretary Vilsack. Uh, I want to thank Secretary, uh, sorry, Senator Grassley for testifying and raising the need uh, that we, for reform in the cattle industry. I've actually worked with the senator and led the introduction of his 5014 bill in the House last year and agree that we absolutely need a compromise that unites the industry, but also works for Iowa's independent cattle producers. And thank you, uh, Secretary Vilsack, for joining us to discuss this important issue as well. Uh, you, you, of course, know I was proud to be standing next to you in Council Bluffs this summer uh, when you announced the USDA's effort to expand processing capacity with $500 million provided by Congress in the American Rescue Plan. And we all know that those resources are so desperately needed because I constantly hear from Iowa producers about the significant consolidation in the industry and the increasing price spread, as well as the lack of competition in the cash market. You and I both have heard from local producer who had been selling his cattle at a loss while his packer was making a significant profit. That We talked about that in Council Bluffs. And unfortunately, that's not an isolated incident. 
In fact, at one point during the pandemic, cattle during the pandemic cattle prices had declined by 18 percent, while box beef prices went up by 80 percent. So what we're seeing, of course, is producers being paid less. Consumers are paying more, but the packers control over 80 percent of the market and are making significant profits. And this is absolutely not right and not good for our country and certainly not good for Iowa's third district. So we need more locally owned processing capacity to help with this issue. So, Secretary Vilsack, um, I know your department is reviewing comments from the request for information for the new program to expand this capacity. However, I'm a bit concerned that these new resources could ultimately benefit the large packers if they're allowed to purchase their competition and retain their market power. Um, The folks that you and I met with in Council Bluff, Cattlemen's Heritage, raised this issue in a public comment to the USDA and suggested that if an entity receives public funding um, for this program, that they can't sell to the big four within 25, if they sell with it to the big four within 25 years, then they have to pay back 100%. So I'm wondering if you share this concern, and if so, how can the USDA implement this program that assures that we can address this issue? Congressman, I don't want to presuppose uh, what the process that we're currently going through in analyzing these comments will result in. Uh, But I I would say that as a former governor, uh, I do understand and appreciate the notion of clawback, uh, as you well know, with economic development uh, uh, programs when uh, industry receives a grant or forgivable loan or whatever it might be based on certain uh, representations concerning job growth. If they don't meet those representations, they don't meet those goals, they are required to pay uh, all or a portion of what they receive from the state back. You know, I think we have to structure the program in a way that we can justify to uh, taxpayers uh, that their resources have been used in a thoughtful and, and appropriate way. And I would certainly hope that whatever structure we put together uh, would be able to meet that standard and continue to meet that standard. Okay. Well, great. And and, uh, obviously, I know you're taking this to heart. You heard the words that Cattleman said, and we certainly want to help um, those industries here in our state. So thank you for that. Um, Now I want to turn to African swine fever, which, of course, is of great concern to producers in our state of Iowa uh, who lead in hog production. Uh, As you know, my colleagues and I recently wrote to you requesting that you leverage every single available authority in the USDA to fight against this deadly animal disease. So thank you, first and foremost, for your recent announcement that you would do just that and try and make significant investments, will make significant investments, I should say, in ASF from spreading to the U.S. But I noticed in the announcement, it looks like most of the funding will be concentrating uh, about containing ASF in the Caribbean and then heightening the surveillance there. Can you clarify then how these funds will be allocated? And does the department have remaining needs for resources here at home to prepare for an emergency if ASF were to hit our shores? Um, And finally, is our prevention infrastructure like the National Veterinary Stockpile adequately equipped to handle such an outbreak? Well, uh It's important for us to minimize and to eliminate the risk at its source, uh, which is why we're working with the Dominican Republic and the Haitians uh, to address the issue as it exists in their countries today and to provide them assistance and help, both technical assistance and financial assistance, to do the right job in minimizing and ultimately eliminating the risk in those two countries. Uh, We've also asked uh, for OIE to establish a protective zone uh, around Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands so that we can uh, so that there will be no imports coming in from those two uh, those two areas uh, into the mainland of the U.S. 
Uh, OIEs never had an application for protective zone uh, protection, um, so they're uh, going to take a little time to look at our application, but we're moving forward on that. Uh, we are shoring up and beefing up our surveillance, our detection uh, systems. I think we are in place uh, with, our, with the systems that we have in place. Uh, you should, God forbid, this happen, that we would be able to identify it quickly, we would be able to eradicate it quickly, we would be able to contain uh, the damage uh, to uh, protect uh, a state or a region of the country. Uh, we will do everything we possibly can to make sure this doesn't get to our shores and to be able to respond as quickly as possible uh, should it get to our shores. Uh, Thank you. Oh. I'm sorry. Go ahead. There's no vaccine yet, so it's not like we can stockpile vaccine. But we obviously, as I said earlier, we're working on the development of a vaccine and hope to get that uh, as quickly as possible. Thank, Thank you, Secretary. Mr. Secretary. The gentleman, <clears throat> the gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Baird, recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here. Uh, it's uh, very timely to have the discussion that we're having relating to livestock. Uh, my question deals with a topic that really is fascinating to me, and it represents an opportunity for American agriculture, and that's animal biotech. Uh, we all know the broad and valuable benefits our industry can gain from this technology. But with past products, we've seen uh, somewhat of a difficulty in getting those to market, and the regulatory process is uh, incredibly onerous. So uh, this morning, uh, Chairman Plaskett and I sent over a letter to you and the acting FDA Commissioner Woodcock uh, with the support of Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson and more than two-thirds of the entire committee. And we were expressing our concerns for how the current cumbersome regulatory process uh, sends a message and tends to stifle innovation. And so we want to urge a cooperation between the agencies uh, to develop an efficient uh, risk and science-based regulatory system that can create a safe, predictable path to market for these innovative technologies. So my question to you, uh, can you elaborate and update us on USDA's ANPR regarding what steps the department is taking to lead in improving these reg this regulatory framework. Well, I would agree Please. with uh, yes, Congressman. I would agree with you. This is a, a technology that's important and relevant uh, in terms of USDA's involvement. Uh, we are really focused on on ensuring that uh, products that are produced, uh, uh, animals that are produced, uh, that we have sufficient uh, and appropriate labeling. Um, and so our focus is on that uh, with the advance notice of, of rulemaking. Uh, we're going to proceed expeditiously. We attempted uh, as a department to reach an agreement with the uh, Health and Human Services and FDA uh, in the uh, Trump administration. There was a memorandum of understanding that was originally signed. I I'm not sure that the uh, folks at HHS uh, published that memorandum. There were some concerns about whether or not there was uh, adequate uh, authority uh, at HHS to sign the memorandum. So we're in the process, obviously, of taking a look at that and determining whether or not there's some additional steps that need to be taken to make sure we have bright lines between what we do and what FDA does. We'll certainly work hard uh, to make sure that we're not uh, impeding the market and impeding the, the importance of, of this technology. Well, that's encouraging, and I thank you very much for doing that. And your comments, um, 
uh, kind of is a lead into my next question, which deals with uh, the USDA recently, they reopened the comment period on uh, labeling of meat and poultry products that are derived from cultured cells of, um, of swine and poultry. Um, that memorandum or agreement that I think you were talking about between FDA and FSIS was back in 2019. So my question to you is, uh, how do you see this labeling process and what's your perspective on uh, labeling these cultured meat products? Well, I think the key here is to make sure that uh, consumers are not confused, uh, that consumers have information that allows them to make appropriate choices in the marketplace. Uh, and so we're taking a look and making sure that in, in, in a number of areas in labeling that, that we are sort of on the side of consumers here, uh, making sure that they have the information they need and the information that's being provided to them is accurate and doesn't misrepresent, whether it's in this space or whether it's in the product of U.S. Uh, US labeling. Uh, space. We want to make sure consumers are well informed. Well, thank you very much for those comments. And uh, with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Washington, Ms. Schreier, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, and welcome back, Secretary Vilsack. It is good to have you here today. Uh, you know, the, the first issue I want to discuss is access to slaughter and processing for small and medium-sized producers, which is a top concern for ranchers in my district. And we've heard a lot of this theme of protecting the little guy today. Um, so I want to tell you about Bright-Eyed Acres. Uh, it's a small farm in Ording, Washington that I visited back in May, and they said, you know, basically they're just one or two injuries or illnesses away from losing access to uh, to slaughter and processing services entirely. And most small producers in Washington state are served by slaughter and processor services operating under these custom exempt licenses that are granted by the state. And yet Washington has a shortage of inspected processing plants and many producers don't want to pay the costs of these processors or to upgrade their own businesses to meet inspection requirements. So as a result, many producers that want to access retail markets are unable to do so. Um, and they end up, as you've heard, uh, with the, the farmers losing money along the way. Uh, so to address the market access issues for local producers in Washington, um, access to these services will probably make the biggest difference to them. So, Secretary Vilsack, um, how is the USDA working to facilitate livestock farmers' access to markets broadly uh, as directed in President Biden's July executive order on promoting competition? Uh, well, there are a couple of things we're doing, uh, Congresswoman. First of all, we, we are instituting the resources that uh, you all provided uh, for modernization of existing facilities to expand market opportunities. We're uh, providing uh, those resources that, that would allow folks to upgrade their facilities, uh, the grants of up to $200,000. Uh, as I said, roughly 240 applications for those resources. So perhaps uh, folks in your district uh, might have considered applying for that. The secondly, we just recently announced this $100 million loan guarantee program, which we think is going to leverage hundreds of millions of dollars of loan guarantees. Uh, that also could be used potentially for mobile uh, processing capacity, which might also provide another avenue, if you will, 
uh, for your farmers to be able to uh, have their uh, their their meat processed. Uh, and then finally, uh, you know, to the extent that they might be interested in uh, coming together in a co-op uh, situation to build themselves and to produce and to be owners of a processing facility, they could potentially take advantage of the five hundred million dollar uh, program that we're that we're setting up. So I think there's a number of places along the way uh, with specific focus on processing. Then there are, of course, a series of other uh, USDA programs, whether it's value-added producer grants or whether it's uh, business and industry loan guarantee programs that could potentially be used as well. Thank you so much. That is a, a great answer. I love the idea of the small farms joining together, and um, we will pursue those grants, and I will share this information um, with them. I also just want to note that uh, Washington State livestock industry, and, and in fact, all of our agriculture sector is very reliant on foreign trade. So um, Washington is number three in exports to the United States, and thanks to our ports, has the fourth largest container shipping center in North America. And North Central Washington, this is not about livestock, but we have been known as the apple capital world and beyond agriculture, from aerospace to digital trade, one in five jobs in Washington state supported by trade. And so um, I know this matters to other people on this committee because we all ship overseas. And um, that is why I'm so concerned about shipping issues that I know you know about at our ports. And I'm, I was heartened by your recent announcement that the USDA will be dedicating funding to address this, um, which we got to speak about briefly on the phone the other day. So my question is that profitability of U.S. livestock producers depends on access to these foreign markets. And I, can you speak more specifically to how USDA is working to ensure access to foreign consumers and maintaining relationships built over many years? Well, there are two answers to that question. I think first and foremost, we obviously continue to promote U.S. Uh, agricultural through our uh, our various offices across the uh, across the world. We're in seventy five countries. Uh, we have we have uh, agriculture experts in seventy five countries uh, promoting U.S. ag, working with cooperators that we help to fund through uh, the uh, market assistance programs at the Foreign Ag Service. Secondly, we're also obviously working on the on the port congestion issue. Uh, I've talked to John Picari, who's been put in charge by the president to look into this issue of congestion to determine how best to, to break up the congestion so we can get more movement. We've established the fund that uh, you made reference to, designed to look at ways in which we can address whatever issues it may be, whether it's pallets, whether it's workforce, whether it's empty containers and trying to provide financial incentives to fill those containers with our stuff and send it overseas. The good news is, uh, uh, from an export perspective, that we are looking at, and just set a record, a fiscal year record, uh, exceeding by uh, about $30 billion, uh, the previous record um, in terms of exports, and we anticipate and expect uh, fiscal year 22 will be another record year. So we are moving product. We're gonna continue to advocate I mean, there's a whole series of other things I could say, but the time is, mm -hmm. the chairman's giving me the eye up there. I'm going to have to stop. Thank you. And thank you for also working with the Federal Maritime Commission on, on those shippers. Thanks very much. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. The gentleman from Minnesota, <clears throat> Mr. Hagedorn, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I apologize to be doing this from the car, but it's a district work period, and I'm out working <laughs> the district, so... It is what it is. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for being here and answering our questions and discussing the issues and uh, for whatever advocacy you and the department can give our livestock industry. I'd like to talk a little bit about the line speed issue that ranking member Thompson 
and Representative Johnson brought up. And this, this past spring, a federal judge blocked USDA's new swine inspection system rule because of a technicality. And you know the court ruled that USDA failed to address comments related to worker safety, which is kind of strange because under the NSIS program where they sped up the lines, uh, actually workplace injuries were reduced 86%. That's, that's a pretty good record and something I think we would want to continue. Six facilities around the country have uh, operating under these higher line speeds for like 20 years. And one of them is in my district in Austin, Minnesota, quality pork processing. Um, Senator Grassley, myself, Representative Johnson, and over 70 other members from both chambers sent you a letter a couple months back urging you to take action to prevent the line speeds from being slowed down. And I might add, I, I was very disappointed that we couldn't do this on a bipartisan basis. None of the Democrats in the House of the Senate joined 74 Republicans in urging USDA to, to look out for our pork producers in this area. I don't know if this is a real urgency for you and the department, Mr. Secretary, because so far you haven't answered our letter. And uh, as a former congressional relations officer, usually if you're gonna testify before a committee, you'd try to clear up all the letters that were hadn't been answered, but thus far we never received anything. And uh, on top of that, in a closed door session with our livestock subcommittee, your staff said, for the, on, said to us directly that the reason you didn't take action in this area is because essentially you were colluding and working with the unions. You know, that's, that's very disappointing to me. Uh, Chairman Scott, I'd like to make a motion that I'd add this into the record, the NSIS letter to which 74 members of Congress wrote the secretary and we have yet to hear a response. Without objection. Congressman, I'm so, happy. I'm happy to do would just, you like I just gotta, gotta finish up your place, Mr. Secretary. Because of the Biden administration's inaction, NSIS plants slowed down line speeds July 1st. In some cases by 200 head per hour. That hurt our independent producers, that hurt consumers, that hurt these plants. It was a lose, 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 lose situation. It hurt the workers, to be honest with you. The result is that we lost 2.5% of production, which is the equivalent, believe it or not, of one plant. Now we don't have very many plants in this country delivering packing plant for pork and we need more capacity and now we're down one plant because of this inaction. So uh, after that, for whatever reason you announced you're gonna put out $500 million to try to help people, it seems that seems to make not a lot of sense because you could just handle the situation and avoided the need to spend taxpayer dollars. So, you know, since July though, you have told industry that there's some you know, waiver criteria out there that you'd like to look at it in order to get the line speeds back up and running for these six plants. And so I guess my question is, what's the status of that criteria as far as uh, you know these waivers? And when you receive those waivers, will you and USDA commit to approving them so we can get back to regular order? And with that, I'll, I'll wait your response. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Congressman. I apologize for not responding to the letter. We'll make sure that we get uh, a response to you quickly, but you'll get my response here today. First of all, we're under an injunction, uh, so it's not a situation where uh, we, we have the ability to tell a federal judge <laughs> that we're not going to comply with the injunction. And the reason we're under an injunction is because the, the uh, Trump administration did not put into the record any information that they had about worker safety. For some reason, they chose not to do that. Uh, that's more than a technicality. That's a fatal flaw. 
Uh, and, and that's the problem. That's the number one problem. The second thing is we did try to work and continue to work with uh, actually the facility in your district. Uh, they sat down with workers and they said, let's be creative about this. Let's, let's not have to have to choose between worker safety, food safety, and pork profits. Let's figure out how we can do all three. Uh, and they came up with a proposal. We're in the process of trying to get that proposal uh, essentially to a point where it could create the structure for a waiver for the other five facilities to be able to decide whether they wish to choose uh, to, to, to follow that. If they wish to choose to follow it, then obviously we're in a situation where uh, uh, those folks can try uh, for the next 12 months uh, this this program, and we learn from this program. We figure out what the challenges, what the problems are. This to reclaim is my, whatever time I have. First of all, the Solicitor General under Biden did nothing to appeal this case and move it along. Second of all, you guys could have written other regulations and solved the problem. Time of the gentleman has uh, expired. We had, we had, worker, safety. We had um, worker safety for 20 thank years. Thank you for that uh, explanation, uh, Mr. Secretary. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Bishop, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you so much for holding this hearing today. It's very timely. And uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here with us today. Uh, you're the tremendous job that you're doing at USDA to implement uh, the COVID relief uh, through uh, the various programs that are being executed by USDA uh, deserves uh, accolades. Uh, the nutrition programs, the supply chain, uh, the workforce safety concerns uh, uh, for all of our producers that are impacted. So thank you for that. And thank you for your courtesies uh, to me uh, in my capacity as chair of the Agriculture Subcommittee of Appropriations uh, in providing the regular updates that you provide uh, with respect to uh, what USGS is doing. And most recently, I was excited to hear uh, the success of the African swine fever vaccine development. Uh, that being said, I'd like to uh, deal with a little bit, uh, Mr. Secretary, on the cooperative interstate agreements. Uh, I was encouraged uh, to see that uh, the Food Safety Inspection Services in the South Dakota uh, finalized the cooperative interstate shipment agreement in June. But under the program, uh, selected state inspected establishments that comply with uh, federal inspection requirements are permitted to ship processed meats into interstate commerce. Uh, this is an underutilized tool uh, that would diversify the beef and the other meat processing markets. But only nine of the 27 states uh, that have state meat and poultry inspection programs uh, have cooperative interstate shipping agreements. Uh, can you help me understand why there's so little participation in the program and whether there's anything that we can do to make it easier for states like Georgia uh, and others uh, to participate? Uh, I think the, the, the simple answer, uh, Mr. Chairman, is that in order to be able to do interstate or, for that matter, export uh, activities, the facilities have to have not uh, equal to, but they have to have the same inspection system uh, that you have in federally inspected uh, uh, facilities. So it, it is a, 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 a significant uh, change in the way in which they would approach inspections. 
it's not a matter of equivalency. It's a matter of actually having exactly the same. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I think you all put the resources together to provide the money uh, for folks if they wish to modernize their facilities to be able to get up to that standard, to be able to, to meet that standard. They now have the option and the ability to do that. A, a number of facilities have made applications. So we may see that, that, uh, that, that increase and that may create incentive for states to take a, a, a slightly different position. We may get to, to see more than nine of the 27 states uh, qualify. Uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary. I, I understand, and I'm going back to the Packers and Stockyards Act, uh, I understand that the department intends to issue the three new proposed rules to enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act, and that uh, in August uh, you introduced a new enforcement policy uh, while the rulemakings are being finalized. Uh, and there was considerable pushback from segments of the livestock and poultry industries when you proposed the gypsum rules in 2011. Uh, tell us, how has the need for rulemaking on certain provisions of the Packers and Stockyards Act changed uh, during the last 10 years, uh, if at all? Well, I think we've learned a, a lot about some of the uh, the challenges that poultry producers in particular had under the tournament system. Uh, questions about whether or not they were being treated fairly, whether there was uh, uh, sort of an equivalent uh, uh, treatment from uh, one grower to the next. We, we, we learned of situations where producers were, uh, were, were advised without much notice uh, of the decision to cut off uh, uh, the ability to continue to contract with particular uh, uh, processors. And so there was a series of, of I think, significant uh, events and activities that gave rise to the need for uh, us to, to strengthen the rules against retaliation, to strengthen the rules against discrimination, to draw a bright line as to what is an undue and un, uh, un, unfair practice so that there was clarity. There, I think there's also the issue of whether or not the standard uh, that that uh, courts ha have imposed on, on the rules that requires a finding that competition uh, is, is, is not limited specifically to the individual producer, but to the entire industry. Well, that's a very high standard and a very difficult standard to meet. So a combination of all those factors, I think, led us to believe there was a need for us to take a look at to provide greater clarity, greater direction, greater uh, uh, and, uh, protection, if you will, so that there's a more level playing field. Uh, in this space between the processors and the producer. Gentleman's time has expired. The gentleman from Kansas, Mr. Mann, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, th thank you, Mr. Chairman um, and Mr. Secretary. Thank you for participating in this hearing this afternoon. I'm still um, awaiting replies from your office regarding um, three different written concerns. One, um, with the abrupt cancellation of the Farmers to Families Food Box Program. Two, the delay in CFAP payments to deserving producers and three issues concerning USDA vaccine mandates, including FSA County committee members need to be exempt from the administration's vaccine mandates. If these vaccine mandates go into effect, uh, Mr. Secretary, it will decimate an already diminished FSA workforce and will also dramatically disrupt the current county committee structure filled by producers across many of my 63 counties and much of rural America. Um, so I'd appreciate a response back on, on those three items, um, sir, when you can. Uh, my, my first question um, has to do with vaccine mandates. Uh, I have a lot of concerns about them. Um, as you know, 
uh, President Biden, you know, issued an executive order requiring all federal employees to be fully vaccinated uh, by November 22nd. Given, um, sir, that federally inspected establishments cannot operate without USDA inspection, what is the USDA's plan to ensure that federally inspected meat and poultry processing plants are adequately staffed if a significant percentage of the inspection workforce elects not to get vaccinated and is subsequently discharged? In other words, on one hand, I think there's overwhelming consensus we need to increase capacity. On the other hand, we're about to put ourselves in a situation because of forced vaccine mandates that we might, the government might dramatically decrease capacity. Uh, uh, w- w- thoughts on that and what is the plan to remedy that? Well, we're in the process of surveying our employees, uh, Representative, to determine whether or not uh, what you've suggested is, is a likely scenario. I, at this point in time, I'm not convinced it is. Uh, I think that uh, the significant percentage of, of workers at USDA understand and appreciate the, that our concern is for worker safety. Um, our concern is to make sure that people are protected, that, that we comply with CDC guidelines. Um, and, I, and I don't anticipate at this point that we're going to see a major disruption um, in our, our capacity to do our job at USDA. We, we will uh, make adjustments if it turns out um, uh, survey results o- over time begin to, to reflect a different approach than what I'm seeing today. Obviously, we'll take steps to make sure that we do not disrupt um, inspections. We do not disrupt uh, the important work that's being done at these plants. We don't well, see well, it today. We don't see it today. So, Okay, yeah. November 22nd is going to be here pretty quickly, and I just have a lot of concerns with um, the position we're potentially putting, uh, you know, further dampering and hindering the industry. Um, the second question, sir, um, would you agree that part of a healthy free market competition is the ability to distinguish a product, um, you know, your product from your competitors? And if so, and if the USDA is successful in allowing individual harm as a basis for violation under Section 202, won't this inhibit cattle producers in Kansas and across the country from differentiating their products because the packer can't pay a higher price for a higher quality, better product um, due to fear that of a prosecution by the USDA or a potential lawsuit from a producer who didn't get the same price for an inferior product? I, I don't believe so, uh, Congressman. I, I think we can craft these rules in a way that provides a, a, a bright line for industry to understand and appreciate what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, what is fair to producers and what is unfair. I think the problem in the past has been the uncertainty uh, of what is or what isn't, and that's what we're trying to, to rectify uh, with the Packers and Stockyards uh, 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 revisions that we're, we're considering. My, my, my understanding is today we've had eight federal circuit courts of appeal, um, you know, have upheld um, the requirements so far with no dissenting circuits. And the U.S. Supreme Court has denied review of this topic multiple times. Each time the courts have found the plaintiffs must show harm to overall competition rather than injury to an individual. Essentially, the courts have said the law is meant to ensure equal opportunity, uh, not equal outcomes amongst producers. So based on all the core decisions and despite a clear congressional intent, how, how do you plan to initiate um, the rulemaking and draw th- this line that, that you discussed? Well, uh, I'm going to rely on, on the, the, the folks in, in our department that are essentially responsible for making sure that what we propose can 
can pass muster in courts. Uh, that's uh, that's the goal here. Obviously, it's not. I, we're not going to review these in isolation. We're going to review these in light of of the way the law is and the way the law needs to be uh, needs to be followed. Okay, Brad. I see my time's expired. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you coming uh, before us this afternoon. The gentleman from Arizona, Mr. O'Halloran, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and ranking member for today's meeting. Uh, and thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here today. I still look forward to some time to having you out to Arizona and seeing some of our agriculture industry and our beautiful forests. I also want to show you firsthand the devastation that unabated wildfire and the subsequent burn scars has uh, during the uh, extreme monsoonal flooding that has occurred in communities. These uh, disasters are not one-time events. They continue to impact communities for months and even years after their occurrence. One such example is the Museum Fire in Flagstaff. In uh, July of 2019, the fire was originally sparked by forced thinning work from a federal contractor. Since that time, the burn scar has resulted in intense flooding from routine, routine rains in some communities in Flagstaff. Uh, and throughout my district, quite frankly, we need federal assistance soon. Uh, Secretary, as you know, the entire state of Arizona and much of the Southwest is experiencing a severe drought. We know that short-term drought can be negatively affect uh, nutrition sources, milk production, and future yields. It can also reduce feed availability, uh, leading to overgrazing. Heat stress is also proven to decrease milk production in dairy cattle and result in lower quality of beef. How is the Department of Agriculture working with the Bureau of Reclamation on drought issues to ensure uh, that livestock markets are not impacted? What additional resources are needed to better support ranchers uh, during these periods of extended drought? Thank you. Well, I, I want to acknowledge the good work of uh, the Congress in passing uh, the uh, continuing resolution that contained $10 billion of additional resource and help, uh, $750 million of which was designated uh, for assistance to livestock producers, uh, particularly in the western part of the U.S. who have suffered, uh, and those uh, well in other parts of the country that have suffered from natural disasters. Uh, we at the USDA have also identified some additional resources from uh, the, the Commodity Credit Corporation that we have available that can't uh, be used for specific payments to farmers, uh, as is the case with the continuing resolution resources, but can be used potentially to reduce the cost of transportation uh, of, or the cost of feed uh, that uh, producers may have to incur as a result of not having access uh, to, uh, to sufficient forage uh, for, their, for their animals. What we want to do is we want to keep farmers on the farm. We want to keep them in business. Uh, we don't want them to have to liquidate uh, their herds because they've spent a lifetime building them up. Um, secondly, we've also looked at ways in which we could use the existing conservation programs to provide some help and assistance to producers. Uh, Arizona was one of four states that received additional equip resources under the uh, uh, under the equip program uh, that was drought related. So we're going to continue to look for ways in which we can provide uh, direct assistance, uh, ways in which we can help reduce the costs. Uh, and ways in which we can uh, enable farmers to embrace conservation practices uh, to, uh, to uh, try to mitigate the consequences of, of this very severe drought. 
Thank you, Secretary. Uh, my second question, some of it's been answered about processing, uh, but I do have a part that uh, I don't know if you answered or not. Um, what is the USDA doing to investigate ways to make inspection more readily available through the use of technology, including utilizing video and sensors to make virtual inspection a feasible reality? Well, one of the things that we did when I was secretary before was to take a look at, at, the, at the science of food, food safety, and to make sure that we were inspecting in the right places. Uh, obviously, um, you know, this is, uh, it's incredibly important to the market that we maintain food safety. Um, and so uh, to the extent that our old system of inspection was one that essentially was inspecting the wrong things or was inspecting areas that, that where there was little risk uh, of uh, contaminants or bacteria attaching to, to product, we've now basically uh, changed that. So we're really focused on the areas in a production facility where the risks are highest. Uh, we'll continue to look at ways in which we can modernize our system and modernize our rules. I think we're, we're constantly looking for ways in which we can improve food safety. Uh, there are also, I think, additional steps we can take, particularly with reference to salmonella, uh, which I think we'll be announcing in the very near future to really try to reduce the risk of, of, of that and redu reduce the risk of foodborne illnesses uh, directly connected to salmonella. It's still too high. The gentleman's time has expired. Now I recognize the gentleman from Iowa. Mr. Fenstra, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson, and thank you, Secretary Vilsack, for being here today. There are many challenges today impacting our livestock producers from African swine fever that we talked about uh, to cyber, cyber attacks on the agriculture sector, uh, also our line speeds. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do. But today, uh, I want to focus my questions on cattle market reform. For months, I've been calling on the Agricultural Committee to hold a hearing to examine anti-competitive behavior in the beef industry. I continue to hear from cattle producers struggling to break even, and I am glad for the opportunity to express these concerns before the committee today. One of the key concerns from the cattle producers in my district is a lack of transparency in pricing. Some coming into since coming to Congress, I've advocated for efforts to ensure true price discovery and allow cattle producers sufficient leverage in cash negotiations. Last month, the White House published a statement on the actions the administration is taking to improve competition in cattle markets. One of these items was that the administration will, and I quote, work with Congress to make cattle markets more transparent and fair, and that the administration, as I quote, encouraged to see bipartisan legislation by Senators Tester, Fisher, Grassley, Wyden, and others to seek seek to improve price discovery in the cattle markets. Secretary Vilsack, we heard from Senator Grassley today about the need to act on legislation now. It is so crucial. This is an area that has bipartisan support. Can I get a commitment to, from you to help on bipartisan legislation like what Secretary Grassley and Fisher have proposed in line with the support of the White House that has been expressed? Uh, Congressman, I, I think there's no question that we need uh, more information. Uh, there are just fewer and fewer negotiated sales, which obviously have an impact on uh, alternative marketing arrangements, and there can be potential for manipulation. I, 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 we're more than happy to provide help and assistance. Uh, just one caution, uh, that we that we look for the proper balance, that we don't, uh, as we try to provide greater transparency, 
we don't necessarily sacrifice the benefits of the existing system in terms of efficiency. I think it's it, 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 it's not easy to do. This is a, this is this is not easy to do, but it's important to be aware of the need for uh, for greater greater transparency and also maintaining the the efficiency of the current system. Thank you, Secretary Vilsack. I can simply say that there is a, a significant monopoly going on with four packers right now that we have to uh, get down to the bottom of this and we have to have transparency uh, to make this all work. And as you know from Iowa, there's a lot of uh, independent producers that are getting forced out of their operations and we simply cannot wait any longer. Um, while Congress continues to do its part, I appreciate USDA's effort to address these issues. In July, USDA announced $500 million to expand meat and poultry processing capacity. I understand the department is currently reviewing comments from stakeholders. Er earlier this week, USDA announced another $100 million to increase processing and strengthen the supply chain. Secretary Vilsack, do you know uh, when we can expect uh, to know the eligibility eligibility requirements and application window for these funding? It is my hope that on the $500 million fund that we have a framework in place before the end of the year and that we start making decisions in the first quarter of 2022. Awesome. Thank you very much. Do you know when we will have more details about the series of Packers and Stockyard ru rulings announced as part of the president's executive order on promoting competition in the American economy? The goal uh, that I've set in my own mind is is for us to get uh, information to o OMB potentially by the end of this year on, on Packers and Stockyards. Thank you. Again, all these three are such, er, there's so much urgency uh, in this. Uh, our independent producers are, are truly at stake. I appreciate uh, you coming before the committee today, Secretary, and I'm glad to partner with you in restoring fairness in the cattle market. Thank you, and I yield back. The gentlewoman from the U.S. Virgin Islands Ms. Plaskett, who is also chair of the subcommittee on biotechnology, horticulture, and research, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for convening all of us today for this important hearing during committee work week. Um, I also want to thank my colleagues for such tremendously informative and thoughtful questions. And to you, Mr. Secretary, for uh, the time that you've been willing to spend with us and really being so well, informing us so much of the work that you were doing since taking the helm once again of the Department of Agriculture. As you were aware, during the previous administration, there were changes that were made in the Economic Research Service Program, as well as in NIFA. Uh, those uh, entities were moved from Washington and sent out into uh, the other parts of the United States. There was great concern that many of us had that the knowledge base of uh, the scientists who had been with that program for a number of years would not make that move as well. And we saw a reduction in personnel and FTEs in those agencies, which of course will impact how those agencies operate. Can you give us an update on if any changes have been made <clears throat> how you um, and plan on ensuring that those agencies are able to do the output of scientific research that is so critical for the agricultural industry. Certainly aware of the concern that you raised. And one of the first things we did uh, when I uh, took, came back into office was to make sure that we uh, use whatever uh, resources we could use to accelerate hiring 
uh, so that we could fill the vacancies that had occurred as a result of the shift to Kansas City. Uh, I believe I'm correct when I say that NIFA uh, has essentially fulfilled its uh, its goal of additional uh, staff. I think uh, 110, it comes to mind right now, uh, of folks that NIFA has recently uh, hired uh, to get uh, back to a, to a level where uh, uh, the work is getting done. In fact, I think uh, work is getting done even more quickly than it was under the previous administration. Um, and I think ERS has also made some additional uh, additional hires. I'm not I'm not sure if they are yet at uh, uh, at the level they need to be, but I know that they have accelerated hiring as well. Uh, so I feel a little bit more comfortable about the circumstance and situation uh, because of these new hires. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I also recognize that the Biden administration, uh, Biden-Harris administration, has made addressing climate change a major part of its agenda. <clears throat> Can you share how new technologies like gene editing and livestock help American farmers and ranchers improve their environmental footprint? You know, I recently came back from Florence, Italy, after visiting with my counterparts from the G20. Uh, and one of the messages that I conveyed on behalf of the U.S. agriculture was the importance and necessity of us continuing to embrace in innovation uh, and not to necessarily surrender the ability to continue to be productive, notwithstanding the challenges of climate. Uh, I was uh, heartened by the uh, response that I got from many of my uh, colleagues uh, recognizing that productivity and innovation and climate uh, response and mitigation adaption don't necessarily have to be uh, uh, in conflict. Uh, you know, gene editing ha has a tremendous uh, capacity, and I'll just give you uh, an example. Uh, you can, uh, and, and there is research now underway of, in root systems, uh, primarily of, of uh, radishes and things of that nature, cover crops, but could potentially be applied to commodity crops where you expand significantly the capacity of the root system that in turn can store more carbon. Uh, which could potentially create an opportunity for American agriculture to do even more than it's capable of doing today in terms of carbon storage and capture. Uh, you can uh, potentially do a gene editing, change the photosynthesis uh, formula, if you will, uh, for plants and crops so that they essentially absorb more carbon and convert it into nutrients and convert it into the root system. So there's an unlimited potential here, uh, which means we need to invest more in research. And I'm glad to see that uh, in, the, in the budget that's been approved uh, uh, by the House uh, Agriculture Committee, there's an additional resource for, for this important research. Well, thank you very much for that. And once again, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for convening um, this meeting. And I also want to thank my colleague, um, Mr. Baird, for addressing the letter that we were able to get out, working in a bipartisan manner, um, expressing our concern and, and the work that is needed in genetic improvements uh, and the hallmark that they have made in agriculture. And thank you for addressing that in your discussion with him. Um, I yield back. The general lady from Florida, Ms. Carmack, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member. You guys know that I come from a district with a strong livestock presence, particularly cow-calf operations. And their success over past decades has been driven not by government intervention or mandates, but by allowing markets to sort themselves out. We all know conditions change. We know through natural market fluctuations or even through unique unprecedented events like COVID-19. Our producers are pretty, I think someone else is on. 
excuse uh, me, Miss Comag. Let me remind members, please unmute and mute if you're not speaking. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, point point being that the markets work and they work best with as little government intervention as possible. Producers like those I've met with cow-calf operations in Florida share concerns that any attempt to intervene in their ability to make their own transaction choices will prove harmful to their long-term success. So Secretary Vilsack, uh, appreciate you being here today. As you know, cow-calf operations, cattle producers, and packers enter into various marketing agreements to ensure that a supply of cattle that of cattle that meets certain specifications, breed, genetics, antibiotic and hormones use, and others that are frequently tied to branded products or retailer requirements. These specifications allow producers, packers, and retailers to differentiate their products in the marketplace and meet consumer demand. Now, courts have long upheld the harm to competition standard in USDA's packers and stockyard rules. However, recent proposals by USDA, your department, could see that standard eliminated. Now, if that were to happen, it would, one, open up a floodgate of litigation, two, potentially limit uh, choice for consumers, and three, limit the opportunity for producers to obtain premiums for their cattle. Cattle, Secretary Vilsack, is that the USDA's goal with the packers and stockyard rules? Uh, no, Congressman. The goal, obviously, is to make sure that there's a fair price for producers and that the marketplace works uh, with appropriate transparency and that producers are not at a significant disadvantage in negotiating with uh, processors. Do, uh, thank you, Secretary Vilsack. Does USDA believe that beef quality and product differentiation are important to consumers and producers? Well, I think there's no question that to the extent that you've got opportunities to value add, that is an important consideration as long as producers get a fair, a fair price or a fair return for the value added that they're providing. That's the key here is getting the fair return. Absolutely. Now, Mr. Secretary, I spoke with a number of cattle producers in my state this week about their top concerns. And one of their chief concerns they highlighted was pretty straightforward. The vacancies at our farm service agency offices. Now, the FSA offices across the country continue to suffer from staff vacancies. I understand that this is a new administration, but we both know how important these offices are to the success of our producers. So why are we into month 10 of this administration and these positions remain vacant, and do you have a timeline that you could share with us on completing these incredibly important appointments and filling the vacancies? Well, let me reassure you, we survey the level of work being done at FSA offices to see whether or not uh, there has been a drop-off of work in terms of processing loan applications and so forth. And the good news is the great work uh, that's being done at FSA offices, there's not been a drop-off of work uh, to farmers. We are dealing with, however, uh, a, a department that had a significant uh, reductions, uh, way, uh, employment freezes, in the previous administration that we are now in the process of working our way through trying to deal with. We, we faced a department that literally had thousands of vacancies and thousands of, of jobs that needed to be filled. Uh, we're working as fast as we possibly can to get up to speed here. But in the meantime, our folks are doing a great job of making sure that they can provide the service that farmers need. Well, Mr. Secretary, I, I, I 
<laughs> I, I have information that is contrary to your statement um, about the, the level of efficiency within the FSA offices. And I know in a state like Florida that is, you know, a top 10 state in total agricultural um, output, we, uh, we have agriculture as our number one economic driver. The fact that we do not have um, these positions filled is a huge issue for, for states like ours. And I would love to continue that conversation offline. But in the interest of time and the fact that I only have 34 seconds left, um, I do want to get to a final question. And of course, if you could detail this into a report uh, back to us in the coming weeks, I sure would appreciate it. Uh, have you been communicating, Mr. Secretary, with the Department of Homeland Security, working with your counterparts and other agencies to ensure that there is a cohesive, effective response to preventing African swine fever from entering the United States through our ports in Florida and elsewhere. This is a concern that we have seen here recently in the news that we want to ensure that this is at top of mind. My first call was to Secretary Marcus on African swine fever. So, and, yes. and would you be willing to detail that, uh, the conversation and the plan in, in a report? And a the lady's time has uh, expired. Uh, Mr. Secretary, you might respond to that in sure. writing I, if you like. I, I'm happy to, to, to share with everyone uh, the work that we're doing in building up uh, surveillance and building up detection, increasing canine, uh, increasing uh, vigilance at the border, uh, as well as working with our friends in the Dominican Republic and Haiti to minimize the risk. And as I mentioned before, the protective zone that we've got around Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands that we're requesting. So there's quite a bit of activity in this space. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Connecticut, Ms. Hayes, who is also the chair of our subcommittee on nutrition, oversight, department operations, is now recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for hosting this very important hearing. I represent the state of Connecticut, uh, the 5th District in Connecticut, and while livestock does not have a significant footprint in my district, I cannot pass up an opportunity to present the issues that are important to the people in my community to the Secretary. So, Secretary Vilsack, thank you so much for being here. Over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, Connecticut farmers have suffered immensely. Early on, milk dumping was commonplace as supply chains were heavily disrupted. Later in the pandemic, Connecticut farmers sought federal relief, but few were successful. Just 4% of farmers to families food box contracts went to the Northeast, and just 8% of Connecticut farmers received CFAP payments. Last week at Subedge Farm in Farmington in my district, floods devastated their operation, resulting in 20 acres of crop loss and Thanksgiving turkeys. Because government assistance has not been able to fully close their margins, Subedge Farms has had to rely on funds from a GoFundMe account and local restaurant fundraisers to keep their staff on payroll. We've talked about this issue at length, Mr. Secretary, and I'm happy to see that USDA has moved forward to address the concerns of small farmers. So, Secretary Vilsack, can you give further details on how the Pandemic Market Volatility Assistance Program will benefit small farmers that may have been neglected throughout the pandemic? Well, it's designed to provide assistance and help, and we're, we're not finished with this effort. Uh, we, we have uh, uh, additional uh, announcements that we're going to make uh, that are focused on, on using pandemic assistance resources to provide help and assistance to farmers that didn't get uh, adequate protection under, under previous uh, disbursements. Uh, we've taken a number of steps to try to help small and mid-sized producers uh, to receive assistance, uh, and we're going to continue to look for ways in which we can provide help. Uh, 
Uh, we've had procurement, uh, there are new procurement opportunities. Uh, we recently announced a billion dollar uh, temporary emergency food assistance program. Uh, 300 uh, million or three to 400 million of that is to be spent uh, for small, uh, mid-sized, uh, distressed farmers, uh, those who are underserved. Uh, 500 million is to be used uh, in local and, and regional distribution centers to create new market opportunities. So there's uh, procurement, there's additional financial assistance, uh, we are continuing to work uh, with uh, a variety of, of uh, uh, mechanisms that we have yet to announce uh, to provide help and assistance. So uh, more is coming. Well, thank you so much for that detail. And I understand that this program was created with funds that the USDA has also used to create a dairy donation program and supplemental dairy margin coverage programs. Have small and medium-sized farms been able to access those programs easily? And what is the, how is the USDA implementing any new outreach strategies to compensate for previous program disparities? Well, the, the dairy donation program is available for folks uh, who essentially uh, experienced uh, difficulties during the early stages of the pandemic, and so they're able to apply for those resources. Uh, the, the other assistance programs are designed to sort of uh, equalize uh, uh, sort of an oddity that occurred during the COVID situation uh, where uh, the U.S. government was in the business of purchasing a lot of cheese, and that created uh, a bit of a, a challenge for, uh, for some of the milk producers in terms of getting full and complete value for their milk. So we're in the process of trying to uh, at least make up 80% uh, of the losses that they may have incurred by virtue of, um, uh, uh, of that distortion, up to 5 million pounds of milk, which is really focused on small and mid-sized dairy producers. Uh, there's additional help and assistance that's going to be forthcoming uh, uh, for dairy operators as well. Um, as we take a look at uh, 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 the gross margin protection program, uh, the coverage program, rather, uh, and making adjustments there. So the, uh, all told, it's about $1.3 billion of additional assistance for dairy operators. Well, thank you, Mr. Secretary. I'm very excited to hear all of all of those things. And I am always generally concerned about the lack of programmatic equity between large corporate farms and some of the smaller family farms that I represent. So I look forward to collaborating with you and the department and assisting in any way I can or with other members of Congress to help make sure that all of our farmers can feel the impact of the work that is being done at the USDA. Um, thank you so much, Mr. Secretary, for your time. Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. The general lady from Minnesota, Ms. Fishback, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, thank you, Secretary Vilsack, for being here today. And just wanted to, you, you talked a little bit about uh, the drought with Representative O'Halloran, but uh, in your written testimony, you mentioned that producers have faced the possibility of having to liquidate herd uh, herds due to the lack of availability or affordability of feed and forage from this summer's drought. In my district, uh, that was not just a possibility, it was reality. Uh, nearly all of my state has had some kind of abnormally dry conditions and over three quarters in severe drought. Most notably, the northwest and north central portion of my district spent significant time in the highest level of drought conditions, which is where I heard from producers that unfortunately this possibility did become a reality. To this day, portions of that northern point are still in D3 extreme drought. The producers in my district saw this coming and requested emergency authorization to hay and graze CRP acres prior to the nesting season. 
In July, I led a delegation letter with Senator Klobuchar formally requesting action from you prior to the primary nesting season. Other members and delegations, including Congressman Johnson, requested the same from you. To this day, we have yet to receive word from you or your staff on what drove that decision. Seeing as this is your first time appearing since uh, appearing before the committee since the drought started, I am now asking you on the record to explain this decision. Well, the law didn't allow uh, me to take the action that you all requested. Then, Secretary, what specifically in that 2018 bill, because I, I think you're referring to the 2018 Farm Bill, what specifically there uh, prevented you from doing that? Well, I, I can get you the chapter and verse, Congresswoman. I, I don't have it on the top of my head, but I will tell you that staff indicated to me that I didn't have the authority to do what you were asking me to do, that it would require a law change. I'm more than happy to work with all of you to do the technical work uh, to get to, to deal with this, but, you know, the, our interpretation was that we weren't able to do what you were asking us to do. As soon as we were able to do it legally, we did it. And, and Secretary, um, we have entered a bipartisan, I believe, with Representative Angie Craig from Minnesota. We've entered, we've put together a bill already to to clarify that if that's the reason that we are unable to do that. Um, but in addition to that, I heard frustrations from producers that emergency haying post-primary nesting season was disallowed upon the graduation of a county from a D2 to a D3 drought. And I, I can't figure out why a county's haying situation is suddenly in better shape shape enough uh, to to lift this emergency authorization as the drought conditions actually worsen. Can you explain uh, for the producers in my district why that decision was made and where in law that we need to make those changes? I'm happy to look into that circ circumstance. That doesn't sound right to me either, Congresswoman. I'm happy to look into that. Okay, well, I would certainly appreciate some kind of a written uh, uh, written response to that because uh, that is that is a huge concern. We just could not figure out um, why exactly that was the case. Um, but you know, this um, this does tie all tie back uh, to the to one of the biggest concerns uh, from producers in my district. And you know, I heard from producers over and over about uh, the confusing and at times conflicting information from the USDA as to what resources were available to them, what practices they can do, when, and and it goes on and on. Um, my staff and I pulled together a resource page to help adjudicate some of these concerns, but I'm concerned that information decisions and authorities are not clearly and accurately filtering down from Washington to the states and to those farmers. Um, I look forward to working with you to address these concerns and better clarify um, the authorities you need so that we're not just throwing money at a problem and not really, really addressing the concerns and issues that farmers are facing, but we're better preparing for and responding to the situations like this in the future. And Mr. Chair, with that, I yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from Florida, Mr. Lawson, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman and Mr. Secretary. Welcome uh, to this committee. And I'd like to say welcome to the most important committee uh, in Congress. But because of without food and poultry, uh, you know, we have nothing. But my uh, question centers around uh, you know, for generations, black farmers had, and producers uh, have been faced with systemic racism. 
and it shouldn't be a part a part of uh, the farming effort in order to get information down and resources down to farmers that benefits all Americans, you know. But for some reason, it's always been a part. I used to talk to uh, former Secretary uh, Purdue about this particular issue. I would like to know, uh, because of this pandemic, and I've heard other members complain about this, sometimes we forget that we've been on a pandemic, they want everything right now. But because of this pandemic, what kind of relief uh, 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 and distribution investments uh, in supplies, uh, Mr. Valsack, that USDA are doing to ensure that these programs accessible and beneficial for new and small socially disadvantaged livestock and poultry uh, producers and process. And I want to say this too. Uh, when minority farmers, and because and I have a lot of different farmers in the district, small farmers, when minority farmers sometimes are granted uh, different resources for what has happened to them in the past, then, then some of my white farmers uh, they want to go to court because they feel like now they're being discriminated against for something that they didn't get. When you're trying to make up the difference and put them more on a level of playing field and become very difficult as a member as you walk between these groups. And so as a result, uh, my question is similar rounds. What in the department, at department level, can we make people feel that things are fair, uh, that they have just as much resource as anybody else and some of the things we didn't do in the past that we're going to do in the future. Well, there, there are a number of responses to that question, uh, Congressman. First of all, we, we are uh, in, actually in the next several days making, and maybe maybe it was today, making a series of announcements of grants to cooperative uh, organizations designed to provide additional outreach to uh, distressed, uh, historically underserved producers uh, so that they get information uh, concerning uh, the various programs and activities and how to apply and participate in those programs. Uh, secondly, we are looking for ways in which we can provide uh, procurement opportunities. I mentioned earlier uh, the uh, temporary uh, assistance uh, program where we're basically taking a look at ways in which we can create uh, resources for local and regional uh, distribution for uh, for sales to uh, underserved, historically underserved producers uh, to give them a market opportunity. Uh, as part of the American Rescue Plan, you all uh, passed Section 1006, which is designed to, to expand technical uh, uh, access to information, designed to help with market access and land access. Uh, we just uh, recently uh, announced the uh, Ayers Property Rule to try to provide help and assistance to producers to be able to qualify for some of our programs because they had fractionated interests. Uh, of land, we need to get that, that that title to land cleared so that they can apply for resources. So there's a variety of activities underway. There's also an internal review within USDA uh, to identify any particular barriers that exist and remove those barriers. And we also just recently announced uh, the formation of the Equity Commission called for under the American Rescue Plan and President Biden's executive order uh, that will provide an outside look at our activities uh, to make recommendations on how we may be able to reduce any barriers that may exist. As a chairman, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. I'm losing it, losing uh, the voice. Okay, thank you very much. The gentleman from California now, Mr. LaMafa, is recognized for five minutes. 
um, actually we're cutting a little rice right here in Northern California on our farm. It's our last day trying to beat the rain. So uh, it's uh, timely for Secretary Bilsack to check out the Mr. LaMafa, you might want to speak a little closer to your microphone. We're having a little difficulty hearing you. Yeah, I, I shut her down, quiet her down. Anyway, thanks for your indulgence there. Secretary, thanks for being with our, our hearing today as, a, as I come from our, our combine in NorCal. So just a couple quick things. Um, first of all, uh, appreciate your uh, attention to these issues for us. Um, we're looking at here in my Northern California district, uh, livestock grazing is an extremely more important tool for vegetation management. And uh, that's, as you know, very huge since we've had over one and a half million acres of fire in our forested areas where grazing can be a big help in those forests and in the periphery or around them. So um, we've seen uh, with the uh, permitted and bacon allotments that the forests have become overgrown. So uh, we need a lot more effort on that. So there were, my, my stats show they have, as of June of 2019, there was 211 vacant U.S. Forest Service Region 5 grazing allotments. What can we do to uh, get those back into circulation again to get more cattle, sheep, and goats helping out? Because certainly we're, uh, we're under the gun with the amount of fire we have each year. And as a side note, I hope we can get the Forest Service really cracking on the restoration needs to be done. So we're going to have so much erosion that's going to get into our waterways as well. But what can we do to speed up the, the grazing allotments put out those permits? Well, uh, thanks for the question. I, I think first of all is to make sure that uh, the vacant areas that you're referring to, are, are they vacant for a reason or not? Uh, are they just simply vacant? Uh, sometimes there are vacant lots because they've been uh, overutilized and it's rotational grazing. Sometimes there is a scientific reason why we, we can't allow grazing. We want to make sure we don't uh, we don't disrupt the science. But to the extent uh, that we have vacant lots, sometimes we have them for these kinds of circumstances. So I'm sure the Forest Service will be moving as quickly as possible for those those lots that are appropriate to, to create access uh, for those folks who have lost uh, their grazing rights because of because of fire. Uh, I will tell you, Congressman, I couldn't agree with you more. We do need to do a lot more restoration, but at the end of the day, it, it is really about finances, and, and that's why it's important for the infrastructure bill. That's why it's important for the reconciliation bill to get passed, because it's going to provide sufficient resources for us not to continue to do what we've been doing for far too long, which is simply putting fires out. Um, you know, it takes about $50,000 an acre to put a fire out. It takes about $1,400 an acre to, to, uh, to adequately uh, treat uh, an acre. So it's, it's cost efficient for us to treat more acres, but we continually have to rub Peter to pay Paul. Uh, so I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Thank you. I just toured uh, much of the area yesterday in my district there. There's so many dead ghost trees. We're going to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of dead trees. And whatever grazing can do to help in between that would be huge. But let me touch on, too, the uh, situation with our ports. As uh, I know you're painfully aware with the uh, uh, our ports here on the West Coast, many, many ships out there. And that means we're not also loading up our ag products to go back overseas from port to so many almonds we grow here in, uh, in California. So we, can you touch on a little bit, please, on how far USDA has been able to get so far with the Department of Transportation and 
maritime on uh, uh, just helping make, break the backlog and make sure agriculture is served in putting something back on these empty containers that seem to be going across the seas. Well, I, I think I heard most of that question, uh, Congressman. I'll try to respond. We have been in contact with the Maritime Commission, as you know. It's a it's a, a independent federal regulatory agency, so there's limited capacity that we have to basically force them to do things. But we've strongly encouraged them uh, to 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 do what they can to break up the congestion, to deal with the issue of empty containers. We've also worked with John Picari, who the president has. Uh, appointed as a special envoy, and most recently we uh, identified money within CCC uh, to be able to be used as we determine what we can do, uh, whether it's pallets, whether it's workers, whether it's uh, incentives for empty containers to be filled with agricultural products, resources that can potentially be used uh, to provide some help and assistance. That's our intent. Uh, about a $500 million is available now uh, to help. If you have some suggestions and ideas about that, we would welcome them. Okay, we'll, we'll send those to Dan. I appreciate the time. I'll, I'll leave you with a little more harvest scene right here. So take care, sir. Thank you. The general lady now from Illinois, Ms. Miller, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Secretary. I'm grateful for the opportunity today to address questions and concerns and of producers. And I want to say that I understand from personal experience, my husband and I have been running a multi-generational family farm and cow-calf operate. And our two adult sons are now struggling to carry on. So many of these concerns, I, um, I have uh, a deep, um, like, I, a deep understanding of. And... Uh, they, they definitely affect many of our neighbors and friends that are involved in this industry. So, Mr. Secretary, in your testimony, you mentioned that the department will be complementing the proposed packers and stockyards rules with enhanced market transparency tools under our Market News Service and Livestock Mandatory Reporting Act. Would you please explain what sorts of tools you are referring to? Well, we just issued two additional studies uh, to provide additional resources and information uh, th that would provide, um, uh, based on uh, uh, L LMR data. Uh, we're also having a, uh, we also had a webinar recently uh, to give folks a under better understanding of how uh, to utilize LMR. So additional market news reports uh, and webinars to make sure producers are uh, fully aware. Uh, we'll continue to look for ways in which we can, as I mentioned earlier, uh, utilize uh, libraries so people understand and appreciate as well uh, contract provisions that may be fair and reasonable to uh, to be included in their contracts. Thank you. I look forward to um, having access to you to bring ideas from the producers. Well, and Mr. Perry, I know you are aware many in the cattle industry and in Congress are eager to learn the results of the DOJ's investigation of beef packers announced in the summer of 2020. To date, the, the DOJ has not provided any updates regarding the investigation status or conclusive reports resulting from its review. 
Would you please describe how the USDA collaborates with or supports the DOJ during such an investigation? And do you have insight on when we can expect to see the conclusion of the investigation? I don't have insight in terms of when the DOJ will finish their work, but I will tell you that USDA uh, is engaged and involved in providing uh, the technical assistance, the data, the information that the DOJ requests. Uh, we are the, the sort of the depository of a lot of information, a lot of data about the market, which the DOJ requests, and we provide it as they request it so that they can make a proper evaluation and determination. Okay. And we look forward to getting more of that information. And finally, Mr. Secretary, when the president promised not to raise taxes on anyone making less than 400000 a year, is it reasonable to presume that the promise included farm and ranch fees? Can you guarantee that no rancher who makes less than 400000 per year will face new taxes or increased borrowing costs due to the president's support drastically reducing the estate tax exemption? Well, I, I don't think there's, the president hasn't made any uh, recommendation to reduce the estate tax exemption. Uh, that's still $11 million, and I don't think there's any change that's been a pro, uh, a proposed there. I think my, what, what you may be asking about is a stepped-up basis. That's a different issue. Um, and, and I will tell you that our ERS has taken a look at this, um, and they have concluded not once but twice uh, that roughly 98% of family farms uh, in, in this country are not going to be impacted and affected by this. Um, and so uh, I would stand on the ERS study. I'm happy to provide it to you uh, if you have not had a chance to read it. Are you saying that rolling that back is not going to affect the family farm or ranch? I'm sorry, what? Are you? Did you just say that rolling back the stepped-up basis is not going to affect them? Well, that's because there are two very important conditions here. One is if the farm continues to be owned and operated by the family, there is no impact. There is no tax due. There's no capital gains that's due at that point in time. Secondly, if, in fact, at some point in time in the future, the family decides to sell the farm and get out of the farming business, there are exemptions, a million dollars a person. Uh, when you combine the exemptions and the fact that uh, the vast majority of farms that are being transferred will continue to be owned and operated by the family, you're talking about 98% of the farms. What, what you're, the people that are going to be impacted by this are people like me. Uh, I'm an owner of a farm. My kids are never going to be farmers. Uh, I, uh, the farm I own has been appreciated over the last 30 years that I've owned it. Um, and the reality is if my kids sell it, um, then, you know, I think, frankly, I'm, I'm okay with them having to pay tax uh, because I'm not a farmer. They're not farmers. Uh, we okay. are trying to protect the family farm, and, and I think the family farms are being protected. Well, I just The time that, of the gentlewoman well, has expired. Pulling back stepped-up basis is the end of the family farm. Uh, I don't agree, but respectfully. The general lady from Louisiana, Mrs. Letlow, is recognized now for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott. Secretary Vilsack, it's an honor to have you before the House Agriculture Committee today. As one of the newest members of this committee and in Congress, this is my first hearing opportunity to discuss with you the essential role agriculture plays throughout Louisiana's fifth district and the challenges our producers are facing throughout the state. As you know, just last month, Louisiana and the southeastern part of my district was hit really hard by Hurricane Ida. While our agriculture community works to recover, 
From this devastating storm, many other producers across my state still await assistance in the aftermath of Hurricanes Laura and Delta of last year. Since taking office, it has remained a top priority of mine to secure vital disaster assistance for the hardworking farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners back home. That's why last week I voted in support of critical disaster relief that will help Louisianians rebuild their homes and livelihoods. The continuing resolution also included the much anticipated extension of the WIP Plus program for 2020 and 2021 natural disasters. I urge you and your staff to provide our communities with some certainty in a time of hardship by getting these funds in the hands of our farmers as quickly as possible. On September 8th, USDA announced its plans to help cover costs of transporting feed for livestock that rely on grazing by updating the emergency assistance for livestock, honeybees, and farm-raised fish program specific to drought-impacted producers. While not due to the drought, ranchers throughout Hurricane Ida's path have experienced similar issues on the opposite end of the spectrum. Livestock producers in coastal parishes that don't typically store much feed or hay were left with pasture land inundated with saltwater surge. Additionally, ranchers that do store some hay haven't been able to cut much, if any, this year due to abnormally wet weather. My office inquired with the USDA about expanding the same assistance to individuals having to haul in feed as a result of the storm. In response, it's my understanding that the change gives the flexibility to consider this program for other events when USDA has determined a shortage of local or regional feed availability. Mr. Secretary, I wanted to take this opportunity today to express that, that the need for assistance is there and Louisiana agriculture stakeholders are currently working to gather the appropriate data to quantify this need. As you work to develop this policy, are you committed to ensuring other events such as Hurricane Ida will be given full consideration to access this program? Yes. Great, okay, thank you for that. Um, and I look forward to working with you on this issue as well as other standing disaster programs and how we can make them work more efficiently in the next Farm Bill. Thank you so much for your time, I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Atlau. And with that, Mr. Secretary, we have completed our questions for you. We wanna thank you for your participation and for the thoughtful and very informative presentation that you have given and answering our questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. And now, uh, Mr. Secretary, you are excused. Ladies and gentlemen of the committee and those who are watching us on C-SPAN, I have a very important announcement in order for us to reset the room for our third panel of five very outstanding industry of the livestock industry, representatives and witnesses, we're going to have to reset the room, pause for 15 minutes, and then we will return at exactly 3.05. And so, without objection, the committee now stands in recess for 15 minutes. We will be back with an exciting, informative panel of five industry witnesses at exactly 3.05. <laughs>
305. Thank you. The committee will now come to order, and we are now ready to move on to our third panel of distinguished witnesses today. And we all are very excited about hearing from each of you because you represent really where the action is when it comes to our livestock animal agriculture. And we're so delighted that you're here and taking the time to give us your wisdom, your knowledge in terms of the great challenges that we're facing to make sure we address the right way all of the concerns that are resting with our very precious, and I mean that sincerely, our livestock animal part of our food supply is most important to us and around the world in terms of our trade negotiations. And so let us start with our distinguished fellow member of Congress, the distinguished gentleman from South Dakota, Representative Dusty Johnson, to introduce our very first witness today. Representative Johnson, you are now recognized. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for this opportunity. We all have uh, people we know in our lives who are widely acknowledged to be wise, uh, to be thoughtful, uh, to be fair, and our speaker from South Dakota today is those things. And he has come by that wisdom, Mr. Chairman. Honestly, I have to tell you, when you look at his uh, resume, you can see that he's been out doing it, as you, as you alluded to it at the top uh, of, of this hearing, sir. Uh, th this gentleman with his son has been a cow-calf producer. Uh, he is the, the co-owner uh, of a small uh, feeding operation. Uh, he has served in leadership roles at the state level and now at the national level as well. When uh, this gentleman speaks, his friends and his neighbors listen. And, and I know, Mr. Chairman, I certainly do listen to him. So without any further ado, it, it is an honor for me to recognize my friend and fellow South Dakota, Todd Wilkinson. I thank the gentleman. And now our next witness on this panel is Mr. Francois Lazier. Lazier, I hope I got that right. From the great state of Georgia, my own state. He is the owner of FPL Food, and he is here to testify on behalf of our North American Meat Institute. Our third witness on the panel is Mr. Scott Bluebow who is the president of the Oklahoma Farmers Union and is here testifying on behalf of the National Farmers Union. Our fourth witness on this panel today is Mr. Scott Hayes, who is the vice president of the National Pork Producers Council. And our fifth and final witness on this panel is Mr. Brad Bonier, who is the vice president of the American Sheep Association. Such a distinguished panel. 
of witnesses before us today, and we're so delighted to have you. And thank you for taking some of your valuable time to come before this committee and give us this important knowledge that we need on this committee so we can make the correct decisions that are impacting our livestock industry. Now, let me just give you a few directions. The timer will be visible to you on your screen and uh, you will have a countdown to zero at which point your time has expired. Each of you will have five minutes. Now, let me start with Mr. Wilkerson. Please begin when you're ready. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee, on behalf of America's cattle producers, thank you for inviting me to testify today. My name is Todd Wilkinson, and I'm currently serving as the Vice President of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Together with my son, I own and operate a cow-calf and feeding operation in South Dakota. Additionally, I maintain a law practice focused largely on ag law. I'm testifying today on behalf of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the U.S. cattle and beef industry's oldest and largest national trade association. Our role at NCBA is to facilitate a policy process that respects differing perspectives, consults informed expertise, allows for robust debate, and ultimately arrives at grassroots policy positions that are representative of the entire industry. It's from this perspective that I offer my remarks. Cattle production is inherently challenging. Even in a good year, the differences between making a profit and a loss depend upon factors outside of the ranchers and farmers' control. Let me be clear, the past few years have been anything but good. As producers struggle to get by, the large meat packers rake in record-breaking profits, profits that have not been equitably shared with cattle producers. The current marketing situation brought on by COVID, cybersecurity, plant fires, countless other factors have even the most seasoned industry veterans acting, asking for changes. Something has to give. Because the challenges facing our industry are so diverse, it's imperative that policymakers at all levels of the government remain focused on viable and tenable solutions with vast industry buy-in. NCBA is working through these problems and has consistently come back to four points. First, price discovery. Adequate negotiated trade volumes are critical to our market's function. Thanks to efforts of producers, negotiated trade volumes are up. Some meat packers, however, have yet to demonstrate a serious commitment to purchasing cattle on a negotiated basis. AMAs are very important to the fed cattle trade. NCBA supports their continued use as they fit the unique business models of cattle producers. Or equally as important is the price discovery derived from direct buyer-seller negotiations. Second, market transparency. Since the enactment of the Livestock Mandatory Reporting Act, cattle producers have benefited from consistent and timely reports. That is currently up for reauthorization. And as it's up for reauthorization, we ask you to make changes in LMR to increase transparency. Third, processing capacity. Much of the problem in this industry is processing capacity. Currently, there is a sh serious shortage of hook space. 
The industry could economically accommodate another 5,700 hooks of daily processing capacity. Help is needed for new independent regional and small producers. Look, we understand supply and demand. The problem is demand is excellent. We're moving record amounts of beef. The issue is the ability to process it. Big supplies forced into a narrow funnel result in the packers exercising too much market control. Finally, market oversight. Markets can only function when all participants play by the same rules, which while much of the spread between box beef and fed cattle prices can be explained on supply and demand, NCBA called on the Department of Justice to investigate the major packers in June of 2020. The purpose of this request was to ensure that no anti-competitive behavior has taken place. To date, we have not learned the results of that investigation. Our question is, how long does it take to do an investigation? The message I'm here to deliver today is that complex problems rarely have simple solutions. Regardless of the origin of today's problems, it's clear there is no silver bullet. We strongly urge Congress to resist one-size-fits-all policy prescriptions, which may have disastrous unintended consequences. Careful consideration must be given to the risk-reward of enacting market-influencing laws for hundreds of thousands of American ranchers and millions of beef consumers. Lawmakers should adopt a multi-pronged approach to bring relief to cattle producers, transparency to the markets, and resiliency to the supply chain. In closing, Mr. Chairman, it's been a difficult few years for the cattle producers, but this committee's desire to aid our industry has not gone unnoticed. We appreciate your leadership, and with that, Mr. Chairman, I stand willing to handle any questions. Thank you, Mr. Wilkerson. And now I recognize for his five minutes, Mr. Legier. Please begin when you're ready. Good afternoon, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee. Thank you for holding this hearing. I am Francois Léger, the owner of FPL Food, a family-owned beef business based in Augusta, Georgia. FPL is a member of the North American Meat Institute based in Washington, D.C. The Meat Institute represents more than 350 packers and processors of beef, pork, lamb, veal, turkey, and processed meat products, both large and small. Today, I will discuss my business and provide my perspective on challenges we face. I was raised on a farm in France. I pursued a degree in agriculture and have worked in the beef industry in France, Australia, South America, and the US for more than 38 years. In 2004, I purchased a processing facility and a grinding facility in Augusta, Georgia, and began FPL. FPL business has two parts. First, we slaughter cool cows and bulls. We source cattle directly from producers and through auction barns purchased across the Southeast from more than a dozen states from East Texas to the Carolinas, from Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Virginia to Florida, and of course, Georgia. Our plant creates a critical market for many Southeastern producers. Second, we have a fed cattle operation. As the business grew, FPL purchased pasture and farmland in central Georgia in 2011. 
and built a cattle feeding operation that rivals anything in the Southeast. Today, FPL Chattel Farm has a herd totaling more than 8,000 head, including Angus and Akaushi, purebred six stock animals and feeder calf to support the FPL food beef brand. Chattel Farm also buys feeder cattle from producers in the region through several arrangements. We work with producers committed to raise their calf according to the standard of our brand. We institute a buy-by program for cattlemen who use our Chattel Angus genetic. For cow-calf producers who use our genetic in their herd, we will commit to buy their feeder calves. Our brand is built on the principle of quality, sustainability, traceability, and animal welfare, all intended to satisfy customer demand. Our structure and marketing options have a positive economic impact for the beef cattle industry in the Southeast. The cattle and beef industry is driven by supply and demand, and the cattle market is cyclical. Not long ago, the cattle market was the reverse of today. In 2013, 14, and 15, the herd was small, and producers were making record profit while packers were losing money. In fact, I had to sell our value-added plant for my company to survive. During the pandemic, FPL worked with the Georgia Cattlemen Association to help support the cattle industry in our region. We need cattle producers, and cattle producers need packers. And we need workers. Currently, we see on average 20% of daily absenteeism in our plant. The labor shortage affects not only processing lines, but also warehouse workers' maintenance position and other jobs are so critical to maintaining the ch supply chain like truck drivers. For example, FPL is investing in tractor trailers just to help maintain our cattle supply. In addition to the investment we are making regarding labor and physical capital, we seek to advance our business in the industry sustainability. USDA announced plans to propose new packers and stockyards act rules to regulate the interactions between packers and producers. Bills have been introduced in Congress that would place certain purchasing requirements on packers. Government intervention like this could jeopardize packers' ability to provide products customers and consumers desire, which does not help cattle producers. Earlier this week, Texas A&M University released an evaluation of today's cattle market, which includes an important point about the importance of marketing agreement for providing better communication with producers and packers about beef marketing demands, such as value signals, costs, and scheduling of all which ultimately benefit consumers. My message today is the cattle and beef industry need to be customer-oriented. This is the only way to achieve a fair return for all the sectors. Thank you, Mr. Lazare. Appreciate that. And now, Mr. Bluebell, you are not recognized. Please begin when you're ready. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee, thank you for the invitation to testify on the topic that impacts the livestock industry and me directly. 
My name is Scott Blueball. I am a fifth generation farmer and rancher from North Central Oklahoma. Our family operation, we grow wheat, milo, soybeans, and raise purebred and commercial Angus cattle. I also serve as the president of the Oklahoma Farmers Union, a organization 60,000 members strong that represents farmers, ranchers, and rural citizens. Farmers Union was started in part to help restore and enhance competition in agriculture. Today, a fair market remains a central issue for our organization and for our economy. Over the last 50 years, our food system has become under control of fewer and fewer multinational corporations. Today, the four largest companies in each of these major sectors of the meat industry control 85% of the beef packing, 70% of the pork processing, and 54% of broiler chicken processing. Unchecked consolidation and vertical integration have created a dramatic imbalance of power between producers and corporations, allowing corporations to manipulate the marketplace, push down the prices paid to farmers and ranchers, and ultimately drive us out of business. Last year, I was honored to share my story with CNN's Kamal Bell at my ranch, where he filmed a part of an agriculture episode, United Shades of America. We talked about how the Packers maximize their profits, overcharging consumers, and limiting farmers like myself to razor-thin margins. Between 1980 and 2020, the retailer's percentage of the beef food dollar has grown by 65%, and the Packers' share has increased even more by 70%. During this same time, the farmer and rancher's share has fell by more than 40%. I ask you, how fair is this? It doesn't have to be this way. Corporate consolidation of a food system, especially the livestock sector, is not inevitable. Regulators must consider the need for robust competition at all links of the livestock supply chain. One of the most important ways to achieve this is through stronger language and rules reinvigorating the Packers and Stockyard Act. Additionally, reliable information must be provided to farmers and ranchers through mandatory price reporting and for consumers through accurate labeling. We appreciate the short-term extension passed last week on the price reporting, but Congress must pass a long-term reauthorization with reforms to improve price discovery. Furthermore, federal and state governments should invest and support in more competition in both marketing and processing. USDA has started this process, and the state of Oklahoma has taken steps to increase resiliency in the livestock sector, ensuring greater value for our local and regional food systems. Through funding provided by the FIRST CARES Act, Oklahoma launched a grant initiative to fund new small meat processors and expand existing plants. The effort increased our total in-state processing by 350 head of cattle and hogs per week. 
The additional capacity created 170 new jobs, which are vital to the success of our rural communities. This is just one example in one state, but it is clear the need is to decentralize processing. It reduces the risk of supply chain and puts more funds in producers' pocket and creates more jobs in rural America. Thank you for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. Mr. Hayes, now you are recognized for five minutes. Please begin when you're ready. Good afternoon, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson and members of the committee. My name is Scott Hayes, a fifth-generation pork producer and CEO of Two Mile Pork from Monroe City, Missouri. I serve as Vice President of the National Pork Producers Council, which represents the interests of America's 60,000 hog farmers. I'm also active in the Missouri Pork Association. Before I get into the main part of my testimony, I would like to thank Secretary Vilsack and the staff at APHIS for committing $500 million to prevent and prepare, and prepare African swine fever, which was recently detected in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. I also want to thank the members of this committee who worked to raise awareness of this important issue. These funds will help prevent this devastating disease from reaching the United States. American pork producers continue to work tirelessly to provide a safe and consistent source of protein for foreign and domestic consumers. One way we are able to do that is by having access to timely, accurate information on market transactions, which keeps us competitive when selling hogs. We get that information through the livestock mandatory reporting. LMR requires meat packers to provide USDA with data on hog prices and with other information. The agency then publishes twice daily and weekly reports on hog prices, volumes, contracts, and product values. I frequently check the National Daily Hog and Pork Summary and the Daily Slaughter Reports and use those to help negotiate any loads of hogs we sell on the cash market. Although LMR has been a resounding success, there are several changes pork producers would like to see, such as including prices with discounts, not just with premiums, and whole carcasses, not just pork cuts. And as the last few weeks have proved necessary, ensuring USDA staff who produce LMR reports are deemed essential workers during government shutdown. While we'd like to see these changes to the reporting program, the most important thing is to main, maintain its authorization and funding. We are grateful for this committee's efforts to extend LMR through the next nine weeks and look forward to working with you on a longer term reauthorization. From the regulatory legal front, the pork industry recently was dealt a fairly big blow. The federal court struck down a provision of the new swine inspection system rule that let packers operate at faster processing line speeds. The court decision which was made despite the fact that faster line speeds were tested for 20 years under a pilot program at five large plants, resulted in a 2.5% loss of packing capacity nationwide, according to Iowa State economist Kevin Hayes. 
To put those losses in perspective, even if all the country's state inspected pork processing facilities were brought up to federal standards, that would amount to less than 1% of the current federally inspected pork packing capacity. Pork farmers like me benefit from more packing capacity because packers push up prices to attract hogs to utilize that capacity. Conversely, we lose leverage when capacity decreases. So the line issue really needs to be fixed. Finally, although I already mentioned African swine fever, I'd like to give you a small look at the potential devastation this disease could wreak on the agriculture industry, particularly pork producers, if there were an outbreak in the United States. Tens of thousands of hogs likely would die, and many would need to be euthanized, creating significant disposal challenges. U.S. pork exports, which account for 25% of our production, would stop immediately. That's a $7 billion hit to pork producers. Corn and soybean farmers who produce our feed likely would see a significant drop in demand and subsequent loss in revenue. Many of the 550,000 mostly rural jobs supported by the pork industry would be negatively affected. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Thompson for letting me testify on the needs of our nation's hog farmers. Mm -hmm. We'll take any questions. Thank you very much. And now, Mr. Bonner, please begin when you are ready. Thank you, Chairman Scott. Ranking Member Thompson and members of the committee, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm Brad Boner, a sheep producer from East Central Wyoming and current Vice Chairman, Vice President, excuse me, of the American Sheep Industry Association. My family raises sheep, commercial, cattle, and black Angus seed stock. We're also involved in raising crops which support our livestock enterprises. I'm the fifth generation to reside in our county, and my son Ryan is hard at work proudly carrying on our legacy of ranching in Wyoming. I was a founding member of Mountain State's Lamb Cooperative. For over 19 years, we successfully marketed our members' lambs. In 2016, we purchased the JBS lamb processing plant in Greeley, Colorado. At that time, we were concerned with JBS wanting to change it to a beef facility. Loss of that facility would have reduced U.S. slaughter capacity by 20%, leaving our cooperative members and other producers with no place to harvest their lambs. A subsidiary of the cooperative, Mountain States Rosen, operated the Greeley plant until April of 2020 when supply chain issues due to COVID resulted in the loss of a significant number of our retail and food service customers. Ultimately, bankruptcy proved to be our only viable option. Our worst fears were realized, and currently the Greeley plant serves as a beef facility for JBS. The loss of 20% of harvest capacity was a tough blow to our industry at a time when we had lambs on feet across the country in preparation for our Easter Passover season, our business marketing season of the year. Lamb producers were in a bind with very limited places to market their lamb. Prices for lambs plummeted. And it looked for a moment like our industry, or many in it, would not be able to withstand the year. On top of this, our industry was also reeling from the decimation of wool markets due to an ongoing trade dispute with China. Sheep producers have two sources of income, wool and meat, and both were gone. These events highlighted the concentration and resulting supply chain vulnerability of our markets, conditions we had tried to avoid. Fortunately, and thankfully, 
With the intervention of Congress and the administration, wool and lamb were ultimately included in the coronavirus food assistance program. And working closely with USDA, we were able to get direct payments to producers and feeders and resolve issues with the wool LDP to bridge this terrible gap. Tools like mandatory price reporting, the wool LDP, and lamb livestock risk protection are vital to lamb producers like myself. Unfortunately, price reporting has not adjusted to changes in the lamb industry. While we would like the program to adjust to benefit producers, our number one goal is to ensure program is, does not experience a lapse. Of significant concern is the current confidentiality guideline at USDA, which restricts the information available to sheep producers. In 2011, there were 13 reports available under the mandatory price reporting for lamb. Today, there are only five reports available. Of these five reports, the amount of information provided has been diminished over the years, with data on formula traded lambs not being reported in over a year. This sporadic price reporting led to the USDA's withdrawal of the lamb livestock risk protection. Within the last year, we have seen the opening of a new packing plant in Brush, Colorado, and the reopening of an additional packing plant in San Angelo, Texas. I'm very pleased to say both facilities are either entirely or majority owned by producers which shows the optimism and resilience built into our industry over generations. The American sheep industry appreciates the current efforts by Congress and the administration to build resilient supply chains. The sheep industry continues to experience gaps in significant processing capacity, particularly in the upper Midwest and eastern regions, where we have experienced growth in both lamb supply and consumer demand. Sheep producers in these regions frequently comment that they are only offered one date, usually a year in advance, to get their lambs processed with few, if any, alternatives available. Relatively modest investments, especially through grants or federally backed loans, to increase processing in the areas of the nation where we have both supply and demand, could have a huge impact on the future of this industry. Trade, too, remains a major concern for sheep producers, with over 60% of the lamb available in the U.S. coming in mainly from Australia and New Zealand. We're concerned with the recent talks between the White House and the United Kingdom, to, which have uh, indicated our market will soon be open to additional imports. Science-based standards are important, but equal importance should be placed on reciprocal access to foreign markets. We continue to ask that export opportunities for American lamb be prioritized before further import markets are opened. Thank you for this opportunity to visit with you, and I look forward to answering any questions you may have. Well, thank each of you. You have given our committee and our members just some very, very uh, much-needed information, and I'm sure our members are just very anxious to get to question you and get additional information. Um, at this time, our members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority members. Each will be recognized for five minutes in order to allow us to get as many questions in as possible. And as always, I remind each member to please Keep your microphones muted until you are recognized in order so that we can minimize any background noise. And now, 
If I may start, I want to recognize myself for five minutes, and I hope I can get all my questions in, because you've raised so many. Uh, let me start with you, Mr. Wilkerson. You mentioned in your testimony, and I wrote it down here, you mentioned one size does not fit all. Can you explain what you mean by that in relevance to uh, our livestock mandatory reporting? Certainly, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. The, the issue before you and your committee is will mandatory uh, price uh, reporting or purchasing be enough to fix this market? And our concern is that if we shoot one bullet to try and cure a problem that has gone on for far too long, that we're going to decimate part of the producers. And let me explain why. Because, you know, I, we think we're going to hit the Packers, and I'm all for hitting the Packers. I, I will tell you that. But I think the, the bullet's not going to go at the Packer. The bullet's going to go at the feeder and then trickle down to the cow-calf operator. Because if that packer says, I'm not going to purchase your cattle today because I've got a, a certain quota that I have to meet of a different criteria, suddenly we're going to make commodity cattle. And our producers are proud of their cattle. And they want to be able to market their cattle at a higher level. And it's up to us to be able to have uh, alternative marketing uh, plans for them to be able to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm just concerned that Congress is going to overshoot and, and try and uh, exercise a one-size-fits-all answer. And, and, and uh, let, let me ask you, what actions or changes uh, do you feel would have helped to mitigate the disruptions in the meat supply uh, in 2020? Well, first and foremost... Uh, we need more capacity. I mean, you can get to the bottom of everything on here. We have let this market get down to so few players that they they are largely controlling what is what is happening. Now, certainly nobody could predict a pandemic, but if we had more packing capacity, they wouldn't have this funnel that we have to pour everything through. And the efforts that are happening through uh, USDA right now and through Congress on increasing more pa uh, uh, packing capacity is really what we need. But I will tell you this, from NCBA's standpoint, we don't want that money that you're giving out to go to the four large packers. They don't need any more money. We need that to go to the small producers and the medium-sized regional plants because they can make a difference for us. Thank you. Now, Mr. Bluebar, uh, I wrote down, and you made a statement relative to manipulation of the marketplace. Now, give us some examples. Who's doing that? What, what companies? Who's sure. <clears throat> I would say that the Livestock Re Reporting Act is very, very important for transparency in the marketplace. But here's the problem uh, with the current law, and it needs to be updated for modern times. You have so much of the live cattle market is now sold on a contract-based uh, uh, marketing agreements that they have. 
and very little of it is sold on a cash basis anymore. Uh, when this law was first written, most of the cattle were sold on a cash basis. And because of the private information that is in these marketing agreements, these alternative marketing agreements, uh, we don't have true price transparency. Uh, it, and USDA is not allowed to collect that data uh, because of the privacy laws and their proprietary information. Uh, we would urge that, uh, that that rule be changed, that law be changed, that uh, that they must, all of the livestock uh, marketing arrangements must be reported the same as a cash basis. I see. And uh, let me just ask you, I got a few seconds here. In your testimony, you made references to other ways to increase capacity, such as training, labor, education. Can you elaborate on, on those efforts as well as how they tackle the workforce issues? Sure. In Oklahoma, the governor did, uh, allocated $10 million of the first round of CARES money uh, to fund small uh, processors to get opened up and to re, uh, rework old existing plants to get them up to USDA standards. Um, and, and so we did that. Uh, one of the problems that we're running into in getting these plants open is, is both labor, of course, skilled labor I'm talking about, and then the second thing is uh, USDA inspectors. Yeah. We're in very short supply of USDA inspectors, uh, and that is slowing down some of these brand new plants that are mom and pop owned in these uh, small communities from getting their doors open. Yeah, well, thank you very much. My own time has run over a bit here. And so you can see this is a very important hearing in terms of our livestock mandatory reporting. And now the gentleman from Pennsylvania, Ranking Member Thompson, you're now recognized for your five minutes. Thank you very much, Chairman. I, I apologize for the technical difficulties earlier. So, uh, um, so I, I'm assuming you can hear me now, though. So yes, with, yes, we yeah, can hear you the, pretty clear. I saw the nod of the head, so I figured that was a yes. Well, and thank you to all the witnesses on the panel. This is, as the chairman said, an incredibly important uh, topic, a very timely topic, and uh, and I'd say uh, critical. So I want to start out with uh, uh, Mr. Laser. Your testimony cautions against the sort of government interventions you previously experienced in France. Uh, can you elaborate on what you saw and the lessons learned that should be kept in mind as new legislation and regulations are considered? Yes, thank you for asking the question. Um, 40 years ago, uh, France uh, was trying to support the producers and find ways to support the producers. So they've pushed uh, toward um, feeding young bulls. And uh, so the slaughterhouses had, uh, and the, the way they feed, they, they pushed was through co-op. And the slaughterhouses had to buy uh, those young bulls and the price of those young bulls, the price of the meat was regulated. So the government was fixing the price. The problem was, uh, we had uh, uh, put in place production at the level of the producers. Uh, we killed those bulls at a certain price, but there was no market for. 
So all the products end up in freezers, and uh, the government after uh, to sell the product to other countries at a huge discount. And I just don't believe it's good uh, uh, policies. It's good to. It's not good to take the taxpayer money and uh, to uh, put it this way. So I'm just cautioning against uh, these kind of things. Ranking Thank Member you. Thompson, Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Wilkins, go right ahead. Uh, how does a shortage of beef processing capacity uh, affect the cattle producers negotiating leverage? Okay. Uh, Mr. Wilkinson, how does a shortage of beef processing capacity affect the cattle producers negotiating leverage in fed cattle transactions? Here we go again. No. Okay. Okay, but he is off. And we need to be able to uh, better uh, accommodate uh, that by increasing uh, capacity. And nothing uh, is more important right now than increased processing capacity to America's farmers and ranchers. Well, thank you, sir. Uh uh, Chairman, can I inquire? I can't can't tell how much time I have left. You have time, but I want to make sure that everybody heard Mr. Wilkerson. I believe his mic was off at one point. So, in all fairness, I think we're all we're all on the same path now. If you could repeat that, and then uh, ranking member, you can proceed. I just want to make sure you heard what our witness said. Mr. Chairman, you want me to answer that again? Yeah, yes. Would you? Uh, can you hear him clearly, Ranking uh, Member? I can, Chairman. Thank you. All Go right. ahead. Go right Mr. ahead. Absolutely. And thank you, Mr. Chairman. Again, the, the point is right now, we don't have enough hook space in the United States. We don't have enough processing capacity. And by increasing process capacity, we're going to take away that leverage from the packer. And we need to deleverage the packers uh, somewhat of a stranglehold they have on the market. If you think of a funnel, we're trying to take cattle and put them down into a funnel, and those packers control such a significant portion of the market, we're having a, a very difficult time dealing with that. The only way to cause that to change is to increase the size of the funnel. And increasing that funnel is going to come from greater hook space, greater packing capacity. Uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate your insight. Uh, Mr. Uh, Boner, how important is USDA's wildlife services program to the sheep industry? And what sorts of tools are the most important and effective in terms of predator control? Well, I thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Um, 
wildlife services is paramount to the sheep industry. Uh, in particular, the aerial hunting program, uh, non-lethal and lethal methods are critical to the survival of not only our animals, but our producers. Very good. And then I just uh, want my final chairman offer up to all panelists. What advice do any of you have for USDA as it doles out upwards of $600 million in funding priorities should be? What suggestions may, would you make? Did you direct that to a ranking member? Yeah. So, uh, Mr. Chairman, do you want me to repeat that? Yeah, uh, I think our, our witness, uh, did you direct it to any one of our... No, no, yes. no one, none of the panelists in particular, anyone that may have a... Any witness like to respond to the ranking member's question? Are we clear on that question? He was breaking up a bit. I am not, Mr. Chairman. I couldn't hear it very well. I, okay. I, I could neither. Uh, ranking member. Are sure. You, uh, yep. You're breaking up a bit. We'll take another shot with you. If you could repeat your question uh, because the witnesses didn't hear it. Fine. Let's, we'll try that one more time. All right. If it doesn't work, we'll, we'll move on. But... Uh, to any of the panelists, what advice might they have for USDA as it doles out upwards of $600 million in funding to enhance the processing sector? Mr. Chairman, yes, I'll, Mr. I'll take a swing at that. Sure. I, uh, what, one of the first things that I would suggest is to not give it out to people that are making a lot of money. We don't need to give it to the four major packers. We need to give it to small producers, medium-sized facilities, so that they can make a difference on our markets. Uh, I would uh, I would absolutely agree with that, uh, Carl. That uh, that money needs to be directed to small and medium sized processing plants, uh, and and not there's the big four packers should not receive any of that money. All right. I would just Anybody add. Real, else? Yes, sir, Mr. Bonner. I would just add real quickly that uh, I would also add to that. Uh, in addition to, to handing that out to processors, I think it's important that those new processors have a sound marketing plan on how they're going to move product through their system as, as they move forward. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, good question, ranking member. Thank you for that. And now... Chairman, thank you. Part... Okay. And now I recognize the gentlewoman from North Carolina, Ms. Adams, who is also vice chair of our House Agriculture Committee. You're recognized for five minutes, Ms. Adams. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to our witnesses for your testimony today. Uh, the meat and poultry sector have become highly consolidated and uncompetitive by transforming the food system and strengthening rural communities. Uh, we can ensure a more resilient food supply for consumers and a competitive marketplace for family markers and, and ranchers. Uh, and um, our farmers are a vital part of our, our country and we must ensure a fair and competitive marketplace. So Mr. Bluebout, in your statement, 
You mentioned support for USDA's efforts to strengthen the Packer and Stockyards Act uh, regulations to provide more protections for our national livestock and poultry farmers. So can you talk about why it's important for farmers in your area to strengthen these regulations to give farmers a fair shake? Sure, that legislation was created, you know, well over 100 years ago, uh, and President Roosevelt used that legislation to bust up the Packers uh, 100 years ago or so. Uh, and we're kind of back to that consolidation again, once again, to that level. Um, so I think it's very important both for our contract growers to have protection under the Packers and Stockyards Act as well as uh, price discovery and transparency. Transparency is very important. We know that markets go up and they go down. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the lack of transparency and the lack of competition in the marketplace for processing uh, fat cattle in this instance. Right, thank you. Uh, Mr. Uh, Lazier, in your testimony, you mentioned that government interventions such as reforming the Packers and Stockyards Act and Congress introducing new bills to place purchasing requirements on Packers could jeopardize Packers' ability to provide products customers and, and consumers desire. That uh, the industry's advancement goals cannot be achieved through what you refer to as a restrictive market. So are there any ways in which USDA could strengthen the Packers and Stockyards Act enforcement uh, that the meatpacking industry would support? Uh, if so, why or why not? It is my understanding that um, there are talks about uh, putting a library for uh, cattle contracts. And uh, for a company like mine, um, I am uh, feeding, so I, as I said earlier, I have two types of uh, business. I have a cow cool business, and this one, I buy everything on the uh, open market, so it's negotiated. But uh, on the other hand, I have a feeding operation, and the reason why I have a feeding operation, it's because when I wanted to start my uh, branded product, uh, no hormones, no antibiotics, I had no one who wanted to produce uh, the cattle for me. So I had to start my uh, own things. And uh, today I am involved in genetic and uh, also I have a cow calf, I produce some uh, calves, but I buy also a lot of calves. One of the things that I'm trying to do, it's uh, sell bulls to collect the calves and have agreement with uh, uh, farmers, producers, who would uh, raise those calves for me. Uh, my understanding is uh, uh, if uh, today uh, we um, uh, open those contracts uh, uh, to uh, everyone, I have uh, the possibility uh, to uh, end up in a litigation because I uh, could be argued that I give more money to the producers who produce the calves that I want and compared to the one who, who I may simply say, I cannot buy from you because that calf doesn't match the qualities that I want. Okay, thank you. Mr. Wilkinson, uh, farmers and ranchers are reporting that one of the most beneficial federal steps that can be taken is to permit in, in, uh, intra-distribution, interstate distribution, and resale of customer slaughtered meat. So why do you think this has not been prioritized yet? 
got just a few seconds. Frankly, uh, Madam Representative, I don't know why that hasn't been implemented yet. I don't think we want to impede that, and I would agree with, with uh, your statement, and I, I think that's something that Congress can make major steps forward in pursuing that. Right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm going to yield back. All right. Thank you very much. And now I recognize this gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott, for five minutes. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, Mr. Hayes, I have, a, I have a quick question for you. Uh, have the swine producers received their CFAP payments yet? Mine in Georgia are telling me they haven't. And I just wonder if you if you know the answer on that. So we received two rounds of, of CPAP payments, but they were, my understanding, they are, uh, was for half of the payment, and there was supposed okay. to, or half was supposed to come later. And that's the portion that, that we have not received is the, the top half of that. Okay. And, and do you know if that's limited to pork producers or is that uh, other producers as well? I, I do not know. I know. Okay. Uh, contract producers were, were included in the last round. Uh, Fair enough. About other species. Thank, thank you. Uh, Mr. Lazier, uh, the National uh, American Meat Institute, you, you represent 350 companies who produce about 95% of the, of the meat products in, in America, the the top ten percent of that, if the top thirty five companies from a production standpoint, what percentage of that ninety five do you think the top ten percent are responsible for? I'm not sure I understand the question. Can you clarify more? Sure. So so there are, there are three hundred and fifty companies uh, yes. that the Meat Institute represents. The 35 overall, in, in overall. those three, sir? Overall, in all, across all proteins. That's, that's right. And, um, but if, if we took the top 10% of that, if we took the top, if we took the top 35 largest in, from the Meat Institute, uh, how much, what, what would that percentage be, the 95%? I don't know the answer. The only okay. answer that I know it's about the beef, and okay. if you take the biggest, uh, and it was said earlier, the biggest company represent eighty five percent. Okay, the biggest four companies. Four or five. I the biggest four or five. Okay, so so you've been successful in getting your products into Walmart, and that's one of the things that uh, I don't think we've talked about enough in the in the in the food supply. Is it such a there's there's so few grocers out there now as well um, that are actually purchasing the products. They all want just in time uh, delivery, and they all have they all have their requirements. What suggestions do you have on how we get the supersized grocers of the world to carry more product from these these smaller processing facilities? Uh, first, I'm a strong proponent of uh, transparency and cost plus agreement. And uh, that's the way I manage my business. 
And uh, uh, in regards uh, uh, to uh, the small uh, packing operations, uh, if you start to open a multitude of small plants that deal with 10, 30, 50 heads, you're going to have a big problem. It's going to be the problem of consistency, product consistency, quality consistency. There is a reason why this industry is as concentrate, concentrated as it is today. However, um, many questions have uh, been asked about the concentration of this in industry and increasing the capacity of the industry. And uh, first of all, it's not that easy. It's not simple to go and build a slaughterhouse because you need, as a, and as a packer, I can testify for, Today, if I wanted to build another uh, slaughterhouse, I do not have the money to do it, first of all. The second thing, I'm not sure I'm going to have the supply, the cattle supply, uh, to uh, supply that new facility. I remember too much Mitchell, what has happened in 2020. One, thank you. I'm down to 20 seconds. I'm, I'm very interested in the committee uh, pursuing co-op opportunities. Uh, I've, spoke, I've spoken with the Georgia Cattlemen's Association and opportunities for cattlemen to come together and to uh, own their own feedlots and their own, their own processing facilities. But then somehow we've got to find the way to get the grocers to buy that product from us. And so uh, I apologize for inter in interrupting you, Mr. Lazier. I'm just uh, out of out of time on the clock, and, and very interested in how we how we help our farmers co-op so that they can get a larger share of uh, of the price that the supermarket's getting. With that, Mr. Chairman, thank you for the indulgence to run twenty seconds over, and I yield. The gentlewoman from Maine, Ms. Pingree, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair, and thank you again for. Uh, this interesting day we've been having. And uh, thank you to everyone on the panel. I, I've really appreciated hearing all your perspectives on the challenges that we're facing today. And, um, you know, for the most part, really uh, emphasizing the need for more packing capacity and less consolidation in the industry. And I, I really appreciate, Mr. Wilkinson, that you had a good perspective on that um, because really increasingly there's there's more need for uh, slaughterhouses than ever and and uh, particularly in our region in New England where we don't have the capacity that we used to can't depend on the just the big companies so this is a really an important hearing um, mr. Bluebow uh, thank you for your testimony as well and and uh, being part of the National Farmers Union we all appreciate hearing from them. Um, and I also, uh, I'm glad to hear you're from Oklahoma. My partner's from Gore, Oklahoma. And while I've never been in your region of the state, um, I know agriculture and, and beef production is really important there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, federal and food safety inspectors, getting them into some of the smaller facilities, especially since small plants are so often competing with the bigger facilities for the same inspectors. Uh, do you have any recommendations that would help level the playing field for smaller facilities in this regard? Yes, I, I think the, the executive order that President Biden put in place and cutting the overtime uh, requirements for these small plants uh, that helps, but that we do have just an actual shortage of inspectors. Um, and we're seeing that both at the state inspected facilities in Oklahoma and at our USDA inspected facilities. Uh, so 
Uh, we have to address that problem and get more federal inspectors. Uh, right now, the big plants have priority, and so they're getting the inspectors. The small, the small mom and pop uh, startup plants are having very much trouble getting inspectors in there. Yeah, and I, I concur with you on that. We just don't have enough people. And while we know it's important for the big plants to keep running, um, I hear this frequently about the smaller facilities just uh, can't get them. Um, again, Mr. Bleba, um, we, we've heard a lot today about workforce challenges, and I think that's that's kind of universal across all industries right now. But certainly um, in this one. I've been working on a bipartisan bill called the Strengthening Local Processing Act that would create career training and apprenticeship programs in meat and poultry processing. It's not something that everybody thinks about going into as a career, but I think um, there's a lot we could do with that. In your testimony, you mentioned some programs like this that have been operating in Oklahoma. Could you tell us more about those programs and any models that they are using that we should know more about or consider expanding? Yes, we've. Uh, I'm very excited about uh, our education starting up. We, you know, we have a lack of skilled workers in the meat processing uh, and in management too of these plants. Uh, so we have our junior colleges uh, in Oklahoma. One received part of the CARES money, was actually able to put a processing plant there at school, and so they're not only processing animals, but they're teaching students how to do the work. Uh, we see that also in our career techs throughout the state, and we even have some high schools now uh, in their FFA programs that are doing meat cutting and learning those skills as well. So all of these things uh, together are, are, are very useful, uh, and we do have one tribe, uh, the Quapaw Nation in northeast Oklahoma. Uh, they have a state-of-the-art processing plant that they have built that they do they 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 process all of the needs of their own tribal members but they also process uh, cattle from the neighbors uh, down the road and uh, with their excess capacity but they're training their workers there uh, so they they have this set up as a teaching opportunity uh, to teach both skilled meat cutters and management Great. Thank you for that answer. That's um, that's great to hear about how you're handling it in Oklahoma. And we'll certainly look into how that tribe has been doing their work. Um, again, thank you, everyone, for your testimony. And with that, Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you very much. And now we'll hear from the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Allen. You're now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thank you uh, to all of our uh uh, industry leaders today, and particularly thank you, my good friend Francois, for uh, uh, pitching in uh, because uh, I want everybody to hear your story. It is one of the great success stories uh, uh, in my hometown, right there in Augusta, Georgia. And I'm so proud of, I've had the opportunity to tour your facility. And I was so proud. I, met, yeah, I want you to tell the panel, uh, I called you when we were actually running out of food in grocery stores. And this was back uh, back in, I think, May of 20, uh, 1920. And I said, how are you? I said, are you producing? And you explained to me how you were doing. Would you tell these folks how you did that? 
because it was amazing. I mean, people around the country were shutting down their facilities and you were saying, hey, send me more animals. I'll process them. I'll, I'll do my part during this uh, difficult time in this country. Uh, just quickly, can you tell these folks how you did it? So um, I, uh, being from uh, uh, France, I was watching the news uh, in Europe, and uh, I understood quickly that uh, uh, at that time, the pandemic would come directly to us. And my biggest worry was to lose our employees. So what we did, the way we did it, and thank you very much for the uh, Cattlemen Association of Georgia because they have been very helpful. But what we did, um, we paid babysitters for our employees. We took uh, uh, mask policies uh, uh, immediately and we never backed off of, uh, of that mask uh, policy. And we made sure that uh, employees who had a fever, who had something, they were going to stay at home paid them at home, make sure they would not contaminate someone or potentially contaminate someone. And in matter of fact, during the pandemic, I had uh, the best absenteeism, uh, absenteeism rate we ever had in the, believe it or not, in the company. Compared to today, today it's, it's very poor compared to that time. Yeah. And so that's how, but one thing, we never closed, not one day, we never closed. Well, I want to thank you for that because it was critical to our food supply in the southeast. Uh, Y'all did a great job. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, for all of our uh, panelists here today, we, we, we have a war on small business in this country. I mean, the amount of regulations that are coming out of Washington, D.C. are going to kill the small business community. We also have about 25 million people who are stuck in welfare, work-capable people, and we probably got another 10 million people sitting on the side. That's 35 million in the workforce out there that are available that we need to get trained up and get to work because we've got the jobs for them. But somehow, uh, for whatever reason, the government does not want to motivate those folks to do that. And I don't understand that for the life of me. In fact, the government is the biggest reason those folks are not working. And I think, that, you know, some of the things that we implemented during COVID has created this problem that my friend Francois has talked about, where he has this uh, absenteeism now uh, because of the enhanced unemployment and other benefits, stimulus checks, you name it, uh, that the government's putting out. So I don't know how you start a business now and where you get the workers. I mean, we're talking about investing all this money and uh, putting these people into business. And I, you need to go look and, and get Francois' advice because, uh, you know, what he's been able to accomplish, uh, not many folks have, have been able to do. The other question I have is it, you talked about working with the cattlemen and the relationship you have. Uh, how important is that? It's extremely important. I believe that uh, a vertical integration and have all the segment of the supply chain to work together is the answer. You need to have the cow calf producers, the feeder, everyone sit at the same table. And someone, uh, you know, asked me a question earlier about that. And vertical integration, and uh, uh, the question was geared toward the big retailers. A lot of big retailers, uh, and especially uh, one we work a lot with, 
is trying to achieve that, to put uh, a vertical integration uh, in place. And this is definitely the way to go, and uh, uh, which is going to be very transparent and uh, open uh, you know, uh, the problems, put the problems on the table, fix them, and everyone gets the returns that they deserve. But everyone needs to be open to do that. Right. Yes, I'm, I'm out of time. Francois, thank Thanks. you for taking time today to testify. I appreciate your friendship. And if there's anything we can do to help you, you let us know. Thank you, Mr. Allen. Now the gentleman from Florida, Mr. Lawson, is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I would like to uh, thank all of uh, the esteemed panelists for testifying on this critical issue of facing the livestock industry and providing more perspectives on how to address industry and market uh, challenges. Uh, during this hearing, we have discussed a variety of events that have created a challenging market conditioning, while local and regional food uh, system faced some disruption. They was generally better positioned to adapt to the changes. My question would be to Mr. Bluebach, you spoke a good deal about local and state partnerships in your hometown in Oklahoma that help strengthen infrastructure and local supply chains. How can we duplicate these type of investments in other states while potentially partnering with HBCUs and the MSIs? Well, in Oklahoma, we had $10 million allocated of the CARES money uh, to go to this project. We had 196 applicants in our state apply for that grant money. Uh, there was enough money to go around, and uh, there was 40 uh, operations that were funded. Out of that, 19 new facilities either are online or will be online by the end of the year. And this was all administrated through the Oklahoma Agriculture Department, Food and Forestry. Uh, very successful program. You know, a lot of times uh, things we do in government doesn't does not work, but uh, in this case, this program really works. Uh, get the money out to the states, get the capital out there to get these uh, small plants going. But don't forget to get us some uh, federal inspectors as well. Well, that's great. You know, it's no secret uh, that the agriculture industry has struggled to retain reliable, consistent, and well-trained workforce, especially during COVID-19. Now, I know for a fact that... Uh, a lot of the money that people have received during the COVID time, that money been long gone, you know, and so people are available, but there's no more government assistance for most of this program, except for to try to control the vaccine or pandemic. The question for all witnesses, in your own opinion, what would be some changes Congress can make to address this shortage, especially in the rural areas, which I represent some rural areas and ensure that current and future workers have the mechanism for reporting abuse and retaliatory behavior within the industry. And that's for all the, all the members of the panel. Well, I would just say training education would be the number one thing. Um, you know, we, we need to educate uh, our young people in this skill. This is kind of a lost art. Uh, I remember as a young man going into the local grocery stores and they all had a meat cutter there. And they would cut your steaks just the way you wanted them 
uh, and they processed them that way right there at the grocery store. But uh, that's those days are long gone, and there's very few of those left. Uh, and this uh, is kind of a lost art. If I could, uh, Mr. Representative, I, I certainly agree. I, uh, training and education is critical, but I would also uh, I would also think we need to give people the the incentive to go back to work and and continual payments to to uh, people to sit on the sidelines is counterproductive. Uh, Farmers and ranchers don't get the luxury of, of staying home and, and collecting a check. They have to work for it every day. And, and that's, the, that's the America that I know, and that's what we need to get back to. Anyone else? Yes, sir, I would agree with what's been said. You know, our rural communities, and that's where these small processes are at. And we have an aging population. Uh, we have a shrinking workforce. And it's just, it's a challenge to find folks. Uh, but, and now these uh, small plants, they're, they're doing more and more business. My youngest son actually works for one, really enjoying it. But uh, there, there is a need to, to educate and, and train folks to do that. Uh, but the main thing is we need more workers out here in the rural areas. Okay, that's great. Anyone else want to respond? Yes. Yeah, labor uh, is certainly a big issue in uh, our industry, and uh, we need to train, but also we need to attract more uh, young people to come to work in our industry. And also, uh, one of the measures that uh, uh, I know a lot of packing houses have done, it's uh, we've raised, as an industry, we've raised a lot the wage in order to try to uh, compete with the money that people who, are, uh, who sit on the side right. as the money that they receive. So that's one of the actions or so that the packing industry has taken. The time of the gentleman has expired. Now I recognize the gentleman from South Dakota, Mr. Johnson, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I have appreciated how much today's conversation has been focused on solutions. We're not just complaining about the problem. We are focusing on solutions. Uh, I very much appreciate that. You know, to me, a, a big watershed moment was a few months ago when the Livestock Marketing Association pulled together in Phoenix, uh, U.S. Cattlemen, RCAF, NCBA, uh, Farmers Union, Farm Bureau, and, and those groups, which, which represent a variety of different interests and don't always agree on a whole lot, they walked away uh, with, with an agreement that uh, they could work together on three things in this arena. First off, additional transparency, including the formation of a beef contract library. Number two, more robust investigations. We've been talking a lot about investigations today, and I don't know that anybody, anybody's particularly happy with those that have taken place so far. And then number three, investment in new capacity. And, and particularly, as Todd Wilkinson mentioned a bit ago, outside of the, lar the, the four large market participants on the processing side. So I have really taken those as uh, the marching orders from me as I wanna work with those groups to do a better job in the livestock space. And I just want to call back uh, to Senator Grassley, you know, the testimony at, at the beginning of today. I think the senator, senator really, uh, he, he suggested that perhaps his 5014 was what was needed in the marketplace. And perhaps even that there was some consensus around that idea. Uh, I would say to my, my uh, friends on, on this committee, there is not consensus. 
on that issue. And in fact, uh, 5014 or 3014 did not come out of the Phoenix meeting. And when we look at the report that was put together by Texas A&M, a report that was done at the request of former Chairman Peterson and former Chairman Conaway, when you look at the key findings of that report, and on page 12, key finding number eight uh, says this, that mandatory minimums on negotiated transactions could, and I quote, impose huge costs that are passed down to cattle producers in the form of lower prices. And page 104 of that report, again, prepared at the request of Peterson and Conaway, indicates that the reduced value to cattle producers in this country because of uh, that kind of mandatory minimums could be $16 billion and that that would hit producers. And so as we segue uh, away from an idea that is not consensus-based and instead look at an idea that is consensus-based, the beef contract library, I want to first go uh, to Mr. Wilkinson and then uh, to Mr. Bluebaugh. Uh, give us your thoughts, any additional things you haven't had an opportunity to say yet about the validity and the importance of a beef contract library. Thank you, Representative Johnson. I'd, I'd, you touched on a number of points, and, and certainly the uh, contract library is critically important. You know, they've already got it on the pork side, and, and yeah. we just need to be able to duplicate that. Me, me as, as someone that's marketing cattle, I'd like to know uh, what else is being offered out there. It makes me more competitive. It gives me more of an advantage. Currently, we don't have that, and until we get that, uh, beef producers are going to be at a disadvantage, and that contract library is critically important, and I, I appreciate you bringing it up. Yeah. Mr. Bluebottle. Yes, I would absolutely agree. It's very important to have the contract library. Pork industry's had it a while. Uh, it's the same same processors for the most part process the pork, they process the beef. Uh, so there's really no r legitimate reason not to have a contract library with all these uh, contracts that are secret right now. And, and we need to have transparency in the marketplace. And especially because these alternative livestock marketing agreements are now the way most of the cattle are sold uh, today. And it's not with a cash basis. Um, our organization, we support more cash trade, whether the, I don't have a magic number, whether that's 30% or 50%, but we support more cash trade to establish uh, the market. So with just the 20 seconds I have left, Mr. Hayes, you know pork. We've said that it's on the pork side. Is there anything that would cause, uh, would you tell us we should not pursue a contract library on the beef side based on your experience on pork? I don't see a problem with having a contract library. It, it, it has served the pork industry well. Uh, we had some of the same fears, uh, but uh, it, it's worked well. I don't think it's, it's caused issues that, uh, that some of the folks may be concerned about. Thank you, and Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Balderson, is recognized now for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and thank you for the panel for being here. And my, my first question is going to just kind of add on. Uh, ranking member uh, Thompson started and, and asked the question and kind of ran out of time, but uh, it's for Mr. Wilkinson. Uh, as you know, the USDA recently closed its public comment period for the $500 million in grants, loans, 
technical assistance to address bottlenecks and supply chain issues. Um, what advice would you have to the USDA to ensure they distribute this money uh, effectively and expand processing capacity? Thank you, Representative. First, uh, I would again echo the need for this to get to the small, the very small and the medium-sized uh, processors. And in that uh, situation, they don't need just grant money to build the facilities. Uh, oftentimes, it's operating capital and the ability to guarantee a loan that's more critical for them. We don't want to set up a whole bunch of new processors just to fail to watch the big boys come in and buy them up because that doesn't gain us anything. We need, we need a framework around these loans and these grants so that they can have success going forward in the future. Thank you. Um, a, a follow up, Mr. Can you explain how a shortage of beef processing capacity, a shortage of beef, beef, sorry, processing capacity affect cattle producers negotiating leverage uh, and, and fed cattle transactions? I'm sorry, Representative, was that directed to me? I, I couldn't hear. Yeah, I, I apologize. I stumbled there a little bit. Yes, Mr. Wilkerson, that was directed to you. I apologize. Well, again, the, the shortage is, is the root of the, of the problem here. We just have enough cattle, and unfortunately, we're going through a herd reduction right now because of drought, which is what we don't want to do. We're faced with a situation where we're trying to take a big quantity and funnel it through a very small uh, funnel. And we need that funnel, that, that uh, increased capacity, in order to be able to put us on a level playing field. I want to be able to negotiate with somebody where I can say, you give me a bid, you give me a bid, and you give me a bid. I don't want them saying, this is the only bid you're going to get. You know, I live in a part of the country that's fortunate that we do get multiple bids. But that's what we need to have go across the country. We need to have the capacity to be able to, to uh, put these packers back on their heels. Thank you. Uh, my next question is for the entire panel, and I'm down to two minutes and 25 seconds. It's a lengthy question, but anybody can jump in here. Um, I've heard from a number of constituents and those that work in the agricultural industry about the devastating effects of port congestion and supply chain issues in the shipping industry. Had a meeting on it yesterday, in fact. Uh, <clears throat> this is obviously a complex issue, and both the White House and Congress need to work together to fix it. First, can any of you uh, provide details on how this disruption has hurt your members or businesses? And second, are you aware of any outreach efforts from the Department of Agriculture to provide information, direction, or advice to farmers or ranchers relating to port congestion and these shipping issues? And that's directed to the whole panel. Anybody may jump in and we are down to a minute and 30 seconds. So thank you for as much response as possible. Uh, real quickly, Congressman, I can jump in here. It, it has definitely impacted our our producers' ability to uh, export their wool uh, over overseas, and we've seen a very negative impact to our our uh, wool industry uh, because of that. So, uh, we I have not personally seen anything from USDA to try, you know, any literature or anything to help try to educate us on how to alleviate the problem. So, uh, but it is is a is a big impact right now. Congressman, if I may, it, it, uh, certainly the, the lack of uh, shipping capacity has, has impacted the beef industry, but 
It's also impacted the producer from the other side. The, the producers aren't able to get the, uh, their components to be able to, to run their tractors to do everything else that's necessary in the industry. And we're faced with, with a situation, where I can't even buy fence posts right now because they're not available, and this port congestion seems like a problem that the government should be able to handle. Agree. I, w I would just uh, I would just add I I agree we're having difficulties uh, buying uh, anything that's imported in here right now for uh, spare parts uh, whether it's uh, clothes you see in department stores uh, shelves are empty uh, this port problem is huge and it, it is becoming a very big problem for us to operate out here in agriculture. Thank you all very much for your answers. And uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you. I yield back. Thank you. And now I recognize the gentleman from Kansas, Mr. Mann, for five uh, minutes. Th th thank you, Chairman Scott. Uh, and thank you to everyone for participating in this panel. It's essential in my mind that this committee consistently hears directly from the producers who feed, fuel, and clothe our country and world. Appropriate ag policy results in a freer America that does not have to depend on any other country for food. My district, Kansas One, is, is the largest beef producing district in the country. We have cow-calf operations of all sizes, feed yards of all sizes, and packing plants. We can't lose sight, in my mind, of the economic impact of the livestock industry to rural America and the fact that it is the largest demand driver of our crops as well, at least that's the case in my district. I grew up on a family farm and preconditioning feed yard and spent thousands of hours riding pens and doctoring cattle, and I'm passionate about the cattle industry. I believe that we all should be proud of the progress the industry has made over the years to provide a high quality product that tastes great and is in strong demand by consumers, uh, you know, both in the U.S. and around the world. A couple questions uh, for, for Mr. Wilkinson. T toward the end of your testimony, uh, you stated a few things that you think Congress should do. You, you indicated Congress should be focusing effort on bringing more transparency to the cattle marketplace, uh, support small and medium-sized packers, promote expansion of processing capacity, ensure timely authorization of LMR, uh, review confidentiality agreements required of the USDA, and continued oversight of the DOJ to ensure the ongoing investigation reaches a swift conclusion. I've talked with hundreds of producers of all sizes throughout Kansas, and I agree with all of those recommendations. Would you mind expanding upon any further thoughts on a couple of them, focusing efforts on bringing more transparency to the cattle marketplace and also reviewing confidential obligations that are required by the USDA? Absolutely, Representative, and I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, uh, the confidentiality provisions that exist in LMR are problematic to, to the producers. We, we see uh, situations where, where packers are not able to, we're not able to see what they're paying because we don't, we only have one packer in an area. And Colorado is a classic example. It routinely doesn't get reported because of confidentiality issues. There's got to be some changes made to LMR to allow for greater transparency in, in that information. And, and, and that's just critically important. You know, the, part of the other issues are, I'm, I'm going to speak from NCBA because uh, we've tackled this issue. We went head on and, and we went out and, and formed a working group that uh, actually the producers have, have caused a greater uh, negotiated trade to occur because of themselves on a voluntary basis. And it's that producer-led 
solution that is going to get us out of this situation. No offense, but uh, sometimes the government brings bigger problems than, than you can bring solutions. No, no, no offense taken. Um, I, I completely agreed. And, and kind of that was really my, my second question uh, for you, Mr. Wilkinson. You know, I've talked to hundreds of cattle producers in Kansas Big First from small scale operations to some of the country's largest feed yards and everything in between. I'll tell you, overwhelmingly, I've heard that we need to, you know, A, increase the uh, price discovery in the cash market. B, we need to make sure the producers benefit when they provide a superior product. Uh, C, we need to not let the government interfere in the free market. And B, we need to acknowledge we have regional differences. Can you provide a little more explanation of the producer-driven effort um, to increase cash trade? You alluded to it just now, but but can you expand upon that a little bit? And how's that going and what progress have you seen so far? Yeah, I would be happy to, uh, Mr. Representative. You know, um, a working group was formed and and these are the grassroots. This is all across America where we had participation. These folks came together and and tried to come up with some solutions. So they set trigger points. And if we didn't get sufficient uh, trade happening voluntarily, then it was going to cause a trigger. We had a trigger in the first quarter. We didn't in the second quarter because we see negotiated trade go up. Most importantly, what's just happened in October or the end of September, we now have all four of the major packers that were able to form a packer silo and get their information and find out how they're truly participating in, in uh, negotiated trade. And with that information, we're gonna be able to uh, develop a framework where, where if these packers aren't gonna participate, we're gonna know it and then we're gonna have to take the next step. But right now, the, the producers are leading the charge, and i, I got to give them hats off. They're doing a great job. Thank you, Mr. Wilkinson. I believe I'm out of time. Uh, we appreciate everyone on the panel for being here today. And Mr. Wilkinson, thanks for uh, the further explanations. I yield back. Thank you. Now I recognize the gentleman from Iowa, Mr. Finstra, for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott, and thank you, Ranking Member Thompson. we got a problem. We got a problem. I probably represent the most uh, independent producers of anywhere in the country. And my producers sometimes can't even get a bid. Can't even get a bid. Unless you're vertically integrated, of course. So I talked to uh, Secretary Vilsack this morning about the importance of price discovery and measuring uh, measures within the cattle market. Uh, Mr. Bloombaugh, can you share how increased price transparency and true price discovery uh, measures included in long-term reauthorization of the live, livestock mandatory reporting may benefit uh, the market participants? Sure, it, it's just simply transparency. Um, if, if we can get that contract library, we can get that data in there on all of the sales and not just part of the sales. Uh, reported, that is going to help us a, a lot, make that uh, be able to decide what, what really is the true value of our cattle because it's so difficult right now. Uh, you know, you see the price of boxed beef uh, at record high prices. The price in the grocery stores are very high, but at the very same time, our ranchers' prices are going down and uh, continuing to go down. And every time we see a black swan event, 
which we have seen a cyber attack on some of the large processors that have shut them down. We have seen a fire up in Holcomb, Kansas, that shut uh, one of the large plants down. Uh, and, and then the, during the pandemic was sick workers that shut many plants down. And you know, one of these large plants that goes down offline for any reason whatsoever uh, is nearly 5% of our beef capacity in processing. And so we're just way too consolidated uh, has led us into this problem. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree. I mean, it's hook space, shackle space. Um, it's pricing. Uh, it's cash price. Uh, I'm just trying to find my way of what we can do uh, as Congress. And, and I, don't, I do not agree that it's just simply hands off and let it play out. I, it's just not. I mean, the, the four packers, the, the, they have their way right now. They're, they're making incredible amount of profits. Right. My 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 in-laws, my people I know, I'm, they're losing uh, $100, $120 a head. So my question to you also would be, I mean, what do you think of 5014 uh, that Grassley and, and Fisher sort of are, are looking at? You know, Senator Grassley spoke a little bit this morning that he was in negotiations with Senator Fisher on coming up with a compromise bill. Uh, to kind of mesh those two together. I think that's a great idea. I think it's the right direction um, uh, that we need to go in. So I don't have the num the magic number of the best way. I know uh, different regions of the country, there is more cash trade in some areas and less in others. I will tell you in the Southern uh, Plains, it is a very low cash trade, below 20% in most weeks. Uh, so it's almost non-existent in the Southern Plains. Right. Um, I, I would agree with you, and, and, and that's the trouble. Uh, you know, I think the producers in, in Iowa are just trying to make a, make a living and, and, and just trying to get, get some, some fairness in, in the market, and, and that just doesn't seem to happen. I want to pivot just a little bit uh, to Mr. Hayes on, swine, on the swine industry. I've got about a minute left. Um, can you just talk about uh, the African swine fever and that we have a possible uh, vaccine, the ASF vaccine, and what your thoughts are on, on how we can prevent this as we move forward, and is this an opportunity for us? Uh, Mr. Hayes, if you could uh, just extrapolate on that. Sure. What, what we need to focus on is, is keeping it out of the country, obviously, and that's why uh, so much focus has been put on the Dominican Republic and, and Haiti because it's in the you know, so close to us and, and, you know, we'd worry about it getting into the wild pig population. Uh, we're very supportive of the vaccine. We're excited about the vaccine, but that's more of a tool to clean up if, if we get African swine fever here. If we run out and, and vaccinate the U.S. herd uh, without uh, having it uh, wild strain here, then, then uh, all the problems that we're going to have with trade come as soon as we stick the first pig. Yep. Uh, or considered positive at that point. So, a great tool to have, uh, but it's not uh, it's not the way to prevent yep. it. Yep, I agree 100%. It's just one of those things that we have, hopefully, at our discretion. And I represent the largest uh, hog production uh, in all of our nation in the 4th District. So thank you for those comments, and I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Friendster. And now I recognize the general lady from Minnesota, Ms. Fishback, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I appreciate it. And I'd like to uh, 
thank all the witnesses and thank them for hanging in there with us. I know it's been a long day. And so I appreciate you hanging around to uh, testify and to answer questions. And for, and I'd also like to associate myself with the comments, the opening comments of, of Mr. Mann when he talked about how critical it is that we hear from producers, because as we are going through uh, legislation and policies, it, it is absolutely critical that we hear from the folks that are actually doing the work that are actually having to implement the kinds of the kinds of regulations and legislation we put into effect. So I particularly want to say thank you because it is it is critical that we hear from producers. And just a couple of quick questions. Um, Mr. Hayes, your testimony included a variety of technical suggestions to the livestock mandatory reporting requirements for the swine industry and um, big picture. Um, can you explain what kind of benefits such changes uh, would provide? So yeah, uh, basically, uh, Congresswoman, what, what we're asking is just to uh, modernize it, is, is, I guess would be the best way to say it. Uh, the pig market, the way we market pigs continues to evolve and change. And, you know, we, we basically get to, to make changes in this in LMR once every five years. And, and we're just kind of to get the market to kind of catch up with where the industry's at. So um, I guess would be a, a quick way of of summarizing that. Okay, well, thank you very much. And and then do keep in touch on those because they're they're just, uh, it's critical as we do go through, um, you know, the process of, of creating those new uh, re requirements. So thank you very much. And Mr. Wilkinson, in your written testimony, you talk about long-term declines in negotiated trade of fed cattle. Um, in your opinion, what has been the main driver of that decline and is the NCBA concerned about the lower levels of negotiated trade? Uh, Representative, I would tell you that NCBA is, is critically concerned about the, uh, the reduction in negotiated trade. Um, the good news was uh, or is that we have seen some increased trade uh, this year, in part because we've got uh, producers trying to come to a voluntary solution. But negotiated trade has to pick up. Uh, why is it going down? I think that's largely because we've got uh, people using different marketing uh, programs as to how to market their cattle. You know, 20 years ago, there wasn't uh, a, a lot of formula trade. Now we've got uh, a grid-based uh, trade. All of those are relatively new. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. Uh, you know, as a, as a producer, if I think my cattle are worth more, I want to I want to get a, a better spiff, and I want to be able to negotiate that with the person that I'm selling my cattle to. And unfortunately, that doesn't mean I'm going to take a bid from uh, JBS or take a bid from Tyson or, or or all of those. I I want to be able to negotiate my cattle um, as a premium. So if if I'm selling certified Angus beef, I want to capture that premium. So. When I do that, I take it out of, of the direct cash negotiated trade. And that's part of the, part of the issue. I'm not going to say it's a problem. It's, it's the nature of where we are right now, but we still have to have price discovery and we can't have everything based off of AMAs. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And finally, uh, Mr. Mr. Laser, um, how, how might government mandates on those required thresholds for cash purchases of cattle affect your business model? So I'm in a, in a different part of the United States because I'm in the Southeast. As, as you may know, we're not uh, feeding uh, very much cattle over there, but we're more a cow-calf uh, producer. 
in regard to my business, uh, I'm buying all my cows on the cash market. Negotiation, it's negotiated. So basically, we are in auction barns, and uh, we have uh, three, four, five packers that uh, bid for the same cow, and uh, that's how I buy. And I have an, another uh, type of buy that where I put my greed every day. Uh, out to uh, certain buyers and they deliver the cattle based on the price that I have put out. It's their choice. They have no obligation to come and deliver the cattle. If the price satisfies them, they come to me and they supply. Uh, well, and thank you. And again, thank you to all of the witnesses. I really do appreciate you being here. And with that, Mr. Chair, I yield back my 13 seconds. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. Uh, the gentleman from California, Mr. LaMalfa, is around, recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you again, Mr. Chairman. Um, I appreciate it. The, um, for our panelists there, uh, Mr. Uh, Wilkinson and Mr. Bonner, um, we, we asked uh, Secretary Vilsack a little while ago about the vacant grazing allotments in the West that are you know, a, an issue for our, our, uh, our livestock folks. And so um, he was talking about uh, there might be certain issues with maybe endangered species or others. It didn't sound like it was a bureaucratic issue. What, what is your experience with your uh, memberships on, um, on, on what's going on with that? You know, whether it's a habitat issue, whether it's an endangered species or uh, some other issue with environment or is it just coming down to bureaucracy not getting the things out is there is there a concerted effort to just not get these uh, allotments done for growers what do you think about that Tim? yeah mr representative i'm i'm gonna uh, start by uh, where you left off on your question and unfortunately i think a lot of that is based on bureaucracy you know uh, grazing is the best way for us to provide some forest protection and unfortunately yeah. we're we're taking allotments away. And, uh, you know, cattle grazing is, is good for, for the habitat. And, and yet, we seem to see a, uh, a bureaucratic tendency to want to take that away and, and, and leave that grow up into um, wild grasses and, and game production areas when, in fact, the opposite result ends up. And, and unfortunately, your state has been victimized as part of that process. So grazing allotments need to be given out, and, and we need to get the cattle back on the ground because that's the best forest protection we can do. Yeah. Thank you for the question, Congressman. Um, I would echo what Mr. Wilkinson has just said. Uh, the experiences we see are most of the hurdles that are put out there are bureaucratic hurdles um, made by uh, people with an agenda, for lack of a better term, and uh, it is not good for forest or forest management. Um, we see that uh, throughout the summers as we uh, watch our forests burn throughout the West. And so uh, I would echo what Mr. Wilkins said, that uh, it's a bureaucratic problem. Well, what do you gentlemen think? You know, I mean, in part of my district and neighboring districts, also you have a wild horse issue. You have sage grouse. Um, I, I guess part of the things we need to dispel is that uh, cattle grazing does not compete with wild horse territory. Uh, do you guys, you know, and sheep, do, do you guys find that the livestock industry is still being victimized by uh, a perception on the wild horse issue? And then touch on to the sage grouse and that habitat and such. 
Yeah, absolutely, Representative. And, and, you know, I'll start with Sage Grouse first because it appears that we've made such progress by the producers voluntarily uh, working on programs to enhance Sage Grouse only to suddenly have the federal government decide that they want to declare more habitat critical and kick the cattle back off the areas. You know, it's just counterintuitive. I, I, I don't understand it, and neither do our producers. And, and uh, the wild horse situation... Uh, we're not competing for the same area, and yet we are seeing bigger allotments of cattle moved off because supposedly we're supposed to be protecting a greater habitat area for wild horses, which is going unmanaged and unchecked. Yeah, I would just add, the, uh, uh, in my home state of Wyoming, the wild horse issue is a tremendous issue. And uh, we're seeing it, it's it's so funny. On one hand, the federal agencies have these requirements for the amount of stubble height and things that we leave in our in our allotments. Yet on the wild horse areas, there's incredible amounts of overgrazing for long periods of time that are damaging the resource. Yet nothing is done to to control those populations. And so, um, again, uh, the bureaucracy um, is not always the best manager of federal lands. No, no, it definitely isn't as we suffer with uh, hundreds of thousands of acres of uh, forest learning or forest uh, fire and on our on our federal our federal forest lands. It's just so frustrating as I just went through the district yesterday. Our hills are going to turn into instead of tree covered hills are going to be rolling, rolling hills in the mountains area. And you all I know, we understand what you're what you're up to and how it can be helpful. So. We, we just uh, we need to have you as partners here instead of the enemy because there's folks that just flat don't like you in this industry that you exist and uh, and that's what that's a lot of what comes down to the bureaucracy. So anyway, thanks very much. Thank you, Mr. Amafa. And now I recognize the general lady from Illinois, Miss Miller, for five minutes. Uh, yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and. Uh, this has been um, helpful and insightful. Uh, I do have to make the comment that 40% of our ranchers are gone since 1980, and the rest of us are hanging on. And I say that coming from a family farm, and we run a cow-calf operation. Um, I have visited neighbors, and it's very dire. I agree with um, my uh, fellow members on this. In addition, all of this impacts the rural economy. Um, so anyway, I do have a question Mr. for Mr. Wilkerson. As a cow-calf producer and cattle feeder, do you believe that a cash market mandate would make you more money on your cattle? And if so, do you have an idea of what that threshold should be? Actually, I, I believe as a uh, cow-calf operator, a cash market mandate is going to infer, interfere with my business. It's going to be uh, telling uh, the, the feedlot owner um, whether or not they can sell their cattle because the packer suddenly has this new mandate that they have to comply with, and it gives another bullet in the, in the packer's quiver, and they don't need any more bullets. We need, we need to take away some of that. 
and I'm very concerned, our, our producers are very concerned that they're going to get taken, their free choice is going to get taken away. They want to be able to market their cattle the way they want to market their cattle. Don't tell us how we have to market our cattle. And you can say, yeah, I'm going to tell the packer, but the packer's going to tell us because that's the nature of the market right now. Thank you. And then I have another question um, relating to constituents that have reached out to me in light of expanding opportunities for, um, you know, small operation packers opening. What what do you think? Do you think it's viable to allow veterinarians to be licensed to do meat inspection in processing facilities. Do you think there's a place for this in the livestock industry? Madam Representative, if, if, if the veterinarian is, is trained and has the ability to do that, absolutely. We need, we need more inspectors to be able to increase uh, the, the smaller operations. We're looking for any solutions that we can put out there to, to increase the small producer production because that's the producer that's going to get the food to that local community that's going to drive the economy. It's not, it's not the big packers. We need to hit it, hit it on the ground level. I appreciate the question. Yes, and I understand um, my sons have been having to schedule a year ahead of time for processing. So, like like the other members have said, this is this is a serious issue that we have. Thank you so much. And I yield back. Thank you very much. And now we will hear from the gentleman from Texas. Mr. Cloud, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Texas is a state, of course, where alternative market agreements are heavily relied on. And generally, my constituents argue for less regulation. Uh, as you can imagine, Texans generally do not support mandating a minimum amount of cash for uh, the cash trade. In the last year, the Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico region has made strides in increasing the amount of negotiated cash transactions. Today, 17% of the transactions in this area are negotiated by cash trade, not too far from the company average of 26%. At one time, packers in this region only bought 1% of the cattle through cash contracts. Mr. Wilkinson, can you discuss some of the challenges associated with the government requiring certain levels of negotiated trade? Yes, and Representative, you, you hit the nail right on the head there. You know, that, that increased uh, cash trade came from producers voluntarily doing that. They went out and wanted to make the change. And, and again, the, the issue is if you force something on the packer, we are afraid as, as the, the feedlot owners uh, that that is then going to come down to us and we're going to be t uh, limited on how we can uh, market our cattle. So let us, let us have a chance to, to solve this problem because this year has demonstrated one thing loud and clear. We're making progress. And to all of a sudden force something down our throats and, and mandate something that the government knows best is, is clearly going to be problematic for America's cattle producers. Can you discuss the, the benefits of alternative marketing agreements to producers? I, I'm, I'm sorry, Representative, I, I missed the question. 
can you discuss some of the benefits of alternative marketing agreements to producers? Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. You know, I'm, I'm producing uh, an, an Angus um, an, an Angus animal. I've, I've got the ability to market that animal uh, at a premium, and I'm getting paid for that premium. And it's um, on, on a feedlot situation. If, if you put a certain type of cattle in there and you have a, a marketing window to capture some additional dollars, that, that helps make a profit. And in this industry, profit is so small, we need every avenue we can possibly take to increase our, our bottom line. And those alternative marketing arrangements are in, are in part how some of us are surviving. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I had wanted to be on earlier to uh, talk with Secretary Vilsack. Uh, I'm traveling the district uh, and uh, wasn't able to get on. But one of the things I keep hearing over and over again from people across our district, they're really concerned with some of the tax proposals. Uh, you're a second generation rancher. Uh, the administration keeps saying proposed tax changes won't really be affecting you. Rep Representative, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume I know what that question was because all I heard was taxes and that, that, that gave me, uh, my, my ears went right up. You know, the, uh, Secretary Vilsack's statement that, uh, that the administration's proposals on taxes is not going to have an impact on other than 2% is pure bunk. Uh, you cannot take away stepped-up basis and increase the federal estate tax. Sure, give, give a million-dollar exemption. That, that doesn't cut it, because farmers and ranchers have their assets in land, cattle, and machinery. They don't have it in cash. We don't have cash like that in the bank. So when we have to pass it on to the next generation, and if, we're, if my son is forced to pay tax uh, on to continue our operation just to, for me to get it from one point to the next point, that's ridiculous. And if, it, if he, when he buys out his sisters in that operation, if he has to pay a capital gains tax on it, we're simply not gonna be able to stay in operation. The other issue is, you know, we, we talk about, oh, there's an exception to this, an exception to that. I have a client right now who's he doesn't have a son. He has a stepson. And all those exceptions don't work with the stepson. So his operation, and he's just passed away, is going to be directly impacted if we let these tax proposals come to fruition. Thank you, Mr. Wilkinson. I really appreciate your testimony. It is so vital that we do everything we can to protect the family farms really been the lifeblood of our agriculture industry here in the United States and has uh, made right back to the world. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately, we're not hearing everything, but we certainly thank you for that. And I certainly agree with you on the step up. We're all broadband. We're all broadband. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And you made some. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, just 
you all who have given us your time, your energy, your influential testimonies, we are deeply appreciated because we on this House Agriculture Committee are determined to bring and make sure that we are addressing these critical issues in our livestock animal agriculture area. And, and this has been a very informative hearing, and we thank you for it. And we thank all our witnesses. We had Senator Grassley here, Secretary Vilsack here, Mr. Wilkerson here, Mr. Ledjar, Mr. Blue Bow, Mr. Hayes, and Mr. Borner. Thank you both. Thank you all, all five of you, for coming today and sharing your views and answering our questions. And I want you to know, I am committed as chairman of the House Agriculture Committee to ensuring that livestock mandatory reporting is extended. And you know, I referenced my bill H.R. 5290, which would extend livestock mandatory reporting for one year, a policy that has broad industry support. My bill has broad bipartisan support, as you heard, both Republican and Democratic members here are on board and committed as strongly as I am to making sure because, number one, it maintains the transparency that you all have talked about, price discovery that you all have talked about. And uh, this, as I said before, and I use the terminology and I mean it, this is our precious industry. It is our food industry. It is about making sure it is secure. Where would we be without the livestock industry? And so we feel very concerned about that. And as my colleagues and I lead this legislative effort to secure the future of livestock, mandatory port, uh, reporting, and address the critical live po uh, livestock policy issues that you all have raised and discussed with us today, I, I want to assure you that the valuable insights and recommendations that you all have made as our witnesses is considered in our report and our legislative work. And we will keep you involved as we work our bill through the House of Representatives onto the Senate and over to the White House for the president to sign this bill. And so I know the American people who shared your excellent testimony, thanks to C-SPAN, is greatly appreciated as well. Thank you so very much 
for sharing your views, answering questions, and really shining a light of direction as to where and what we need to do. Thank you. And so with that, under the rules of the committee, the record of today's hearing will remain open for 10 calendar days to receive additional material and supplementary written responses from the witnesses to any questions posed by a member. And so with that, ladies and gentlemen, this very important hearing of the Committee on Agriculture in the House of Representatives is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.